Hello and welcome to the TetraCast, RPG Sites Seemingly Weekly Podcast. It's now May already. Uh, I don't know how that happened. March took forever, but then April went by in a flash. Uh, I am your host, Brian Vitale, and joining me today is George Foster. Hello, everyone. Happy May. We've got Josh Torres. Hi, hi. We've got Adam Vitale. Hey, guys. And we have James Galizio. I actually woke up in time this time. Yes, we missed you last week. So we've got the full crew here today. Uh, I think it's just appropriate with everything that's happened in the back half of April as we go into May. So we basically have the whole suite of games kind of under our belt. Some of us have obviously looked at Final Fantasy, others at Trials of Mana. And now since last week, we've got uh, Sakura Wars also on the docket. So a whole bunch of RPGs to talk about to different levels and different degrees as we go into the warm, hot summer months. Uh, so I guess we'll just probably start with Sakura Wars. I think that's probably the most appropriate landing spot for this podcast to kick off from. So, uh, Josh, you are the one that did the big, very extensive review for us of this game, and you are probably also the most knowledgeable of the crew for the series. So let us know what you thought about this reboot that just uh, launched last week. Yeah, that was the, basically my big project last month that I had to keep under wraps for a good chunk of it. Uh, we, we got in code like at the end of March, and then I was like, okay, well, we have this whole quarantine stay-at-home thing. So I, I, I undertook a task that I normally wouldn't uh, under normal circumstances, but, you know, since I'm working from home, I had uh, a good chunk of time to, you know, not only do like that Sakura Wars somewhat retrospective uh, of my experience of it and uh, like a big review for it, but uh, I, I did a lot of guides uh, for it as well. And it, all those guides are basically combined up to like uh, a big walkthrough of the game. And like, I never really did a, wrote a whole walkthrough ever like not for game facts not for the site i mean i've done it here and there for the site but not like a big walkthrough like a little bit of near automata it's more like a guide page yeah yeah um this is a really interesting uh reboot uh once again this is not like uh an adaptation of the first game this is a sequel that takes place 12 years after sakura wars 5 which was the only one of the main games that got officially localized i talked a little bit a bit about that a few weeks ago um, it's a really interesting reboot. Uh, I I gave it a seven. I'd say it's good because it keeps with the faith. It's like a faithful uh, adaptation and uh, modernization of uh, Soccer Wars because Soccer Wars at its heart, it's not uh, you know a fifty fifty split of like an adventure visual novel and uh, com and the gameplay combat stuff. It was always with is always like around eighty five to ninety percent of the adventure part and then very little of the combat part. Uh, and it's a uh, a lot of it reuses concepts from the first Soccer Wars, and it's that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I uh, you know equated it to as the Force Awakens of Soccer Wars, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a good way to kind of introduce what Soccer Wars is to modern audiences. If you if they made strictly made this a Soccer Wars six that tried to um, be a sequel to like. Soccer, all the previous soccer wars that you needed like intimate knowledge with them, uh, that wouldn't actually work because one, uh, most of the games aren't localized, and two, just soccer wars has a huge fan base in Japan. I 
then I can imagine not. A, it's a very niche property overall internationally. And it would I make think, it kind of like impenetrable if it required all yeah, that pretty knowledge. much. Like you would need Sega to like somehow, hey, uh, get all the soccer wars here somehow. And I think what I'm start, starting to see with this uh, reboot as pe- more people get their hands on it and see, seeing what the reactions are, I'm, it reminds me of um, when Yakuza first came over here and you saw just a little audience like go, crowding around this interesting property. It's a cool beat em up uh, in Yakuza's case, but... You know, it was still relatively niche. It was like, oh, this is kind of a, a neat thing. It's uh, almost a Shemu-like thing, but more action-oriented. And uh, I hope Soccer Wars grows in a similar way to how the Yakuza fan base uh, grew over time. And I think the m- most interesting parts about Soccer Wars, uh, as I mentioned uh, in my uh, review, is that it's kind of super hard on itself for trying to it knows where it's at, uh, right? It's very self-aware that it's trying to uh, reinvigorate, revitalize uh, this once great, like awesome series in Japan. And a, a lot of the content in the game, uh, like overall concepts in the game, no, no spoilers or anything, is about like how the, the group that you're part of, the Imperial Combat Review, which is like this, uh, op- this squad that battles uh, demons in Tokyo. And uh, as a like, to the public, they're not known for that. They, they're they like a stage play, a stage uh, uh, group uh, for them. And so they kind of contend with, man, you know, back in the day, we used to be like really good, like the old people, like the old uh, members, they were like, they're like legends, you know? How can we ever stack up to them? Uh, how can we ever be as great as them? And it really has like this uh, self-reflection over like, yeah, I was how, just can we, say how can we ever get there? Yeah, and uh, the the new general manager of that squad was like one of the original uh, main heroines uh, of Sakura Wars One, so she's kind of leading them, uh, you know. But she's more of a mentor uh, and a commander uh, to them. But she's not like she's not like a uh, a true leader like uh, as the the main uh, protagonist of the game, uh, Seijiro Kamiyama. He's like the one tasked, like, okay, you, oh. it's 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 on you to like get this both the stage group and this uh review like combat review back on its feet um so it's it's really really fascinating and i it's one of those games that i don't know if i can recommend it to everyone right because this this is a game that's very focused on speaking with people it's a lot of conversations with people it's about making those time dialogue choices and that's not everyone's cup of tea but what it really uh does well is that you're really for a lot of people, you're really put into this like foreign environment that you don't really know, and the main protagonist is in the same place. But over time, as you like play through the game, go through the chapters, by the by the end, like the the cast really like sticks with you. It's a, it's a very charming game. You really grow with the characters. You grow to like them. You grow like by the end of the game, I really like like the cast overall. And it there, not a lot of games like you know can really pull off like like in in a situation where like you really not sure what to expect you you really feel like you're out there and then by the end of the game it's like oh no i i really like this you know i i feel like i was really part of their journey all the way through and i, I guess another one of my criticisms is by the end like um i felt like it, it was like an incomplete game in the sense because a lot of the uh, overarching plot threads that they uh, introduced especially the second half of it 
don't really get resolved. It's like it's one of those things that's left open, and you can you know they want to make like a follow up game to this. So hopefully it does. I, I'd like to see that, and, and also that I think it sticks too close to the um, things that happen in the first Soccer Wars and the way they're presented. That it doesn't really try to do its own thing, and much like the Force Awakens does. It's a, it's yeah, very. I was actually going to say right? like. I'm glad we live in a in a world now where we have a new trilogy of Star Wars movies. We can say, oh, this game is like The Force yeah. Awakens if it like plays it safe <laughs> and it's fan pleasing, or this game is like The Last Jedi if it makes a few like twists that not everyone's on board with. Or I guess mm-hmm. you can come up with a similar idiom if you're comparing to uh, um, Rise of Skywalker. So I'm glad yeah, we have that just not... for comparison's sake. Yeah, as long as it's not Rise of Skywalker, I think it's. <laughs> There we and, go. I, I guess, and I guess also one of the criticisms for longtime fans is like that in order to get everyone back on the same page, both newcomers and veterans, um, they do explain what happens to the previous like cast of the games in it. It's not a big spoiler. It's like in the first cutscene when you hit new game. Like they they vaguely go over what happens to them, and it feels too convenient, but also necessary to get everyone back on the same platform. So you basically have to like. Uh, set the basis of like okay this is the status of where we're at right now even though, even though you didn't get to see in the previous games firsthand how they got there it's kind of just explained to you you know so but i saw something oh. on twitter where someone was playing this game and they're like wait mm-hmm. a minute sakura is not the main character it's this guy and it reminds me of um <laughs> tokyo mirage sessions where a lot of the marketing for it is centered around uh, is her name Subasa, but it, yes. you actually play as like the the generic guy that doesn't mm-hmm. seem to have much of a personality. So I just that's what I also thought of when I saw people talking about Sakura Wars. Yeah, and uh, I think that the cool thing with this, unlike uh, what Tokyo Mirage Session does, is the the main dude is very likable. You know, like it's well, of course, like you make him into the character you want to be, right? Because you're very versatile with how you, he responds to things. But the way he like pulls it off, like the voice performance, he's just a generally likable dude, like all around. Because he, like, of course you can make him into what you want, but at the same time, you can tell like the actor really put his all into like this uh, this performance, and, and and the way like things animate in it, the way his reactions are, it's it, he's a he's unlike the main character in um, Pokemon Mirage Sessions. This guy is full of life, full of personality. He's very involved in the main plot and his relationships with these characters. While in Tokyo Mirage Sessions, it was it was just more like a it felt like more of an empty vessel. Even though he had a voice, even though he had like a a personality, I was say, is he voiced? generic. Yes, he's voiced. He uh, just bland. Uh, yeah, like in in, uh, in in Tokyo Mirage Sessions, yeah, I believe he had a voice uh, if I remember. Uh, but in Soccer Wars, the the new guy is uh, he's awesome. He's cool. And also, I guess the, just a shout out as well. Um, the, there's a currently on like. As we're speaking the, at the time of this podcast, uh, they have this new TV anime for the for the cast of this new Soccer Wars, and that takes place. Uh, the events take place after the game, in it, and uh, much like the old Soccer Wars uh, anime, because there was definitely uh, a TV anime adaptation of that story. Um, it doesn't really involve the main dude that much, but it it gives a chance for like. All the other characters to mingle around with each other. They do as a, a fair bit in the game, but more so in the in the uh, current new anime. And that's a really cool dynamic. There's a lot of episodes uh, that like that that really flesh them out well. And I, I think it's a it, it's a fun it's a fun story to like see like after you finish the game. Um, 
So that, that's cool to see. So it's not like the Persona anime, which just kind of retreads the same plot. It's basically a sequel anime, right? Yeah, it's a sequel anime, but it doesn't... Um, it's it's not like it's not serving as like oh we're gonna answer all the questions that like we didn't get to um, go over in the in the game. It's more of like here's a separate story now that takes place after the game, but it's not like following up on the game's like overarching plot threads at the end. It's like there's a there's a new element just for the anime in it, uh, and it gives them a chance to like you know explore relationships of the other characters since they have this time now away from the main character, which is a, a cool neat thing to see. It's also it's also unlike yeah, the old elegant. Sakura Wars anime in, in the sense that in the old Sakura Wars anime, they tried to retell the old story, but it was it was in a time where it was like post-Evangelion. And a lot of shows that came after Evangelion tried to do the Evangelion thing. So while it was a, it was a neat, interesting twist on it, it didn't jive with a good portion of the old fan base because it tried to do like a lot of very dark twists to the original story. And there was a lot, a lot of like psychological stuff added to it, and like a bit of PTSD uh, contention and whatnot. That like a lot of tra- drawing inspiration from Evangelion, try to capture that audience. And you know, for a lot of people, it worked. For some people, it didn't. And th- this one's trying to do its own thing. That's all away from that. Is it just going to be like a single? I'm not as into anime as I know you are. Mm-hmm. Um, is it like a single core, like a 26 episode or 13 episode or however you call it? I think like, I think it's going to be twelve or thirteen. I think ah. I think it's twelve or thirteen episodes. Yeah, uh, from what I understand. So that, I, I that, do that's think that's the... kind of elegant, where it's just like here's a side story. We'll embellish on the characters, but we're not going to make it like absolutely required. Like you don't get you don't get yeah. the resolution unless you watch this. That would just be yeah. I think awkwardly implemented. Like like if you remember Dot Hack back in the day when they had like a lot of like a uh, multi like it was a big multimedia thing back in the day where it had like stories told in different things like in manga and light novels and whatnot even though you didn't like read them and you only played the games you weren't missing out on much but they were like nice supplementary material if you wanted to see like more stories that took place in that world with some uh, some of the characters that you know so it's just like getting you and trying to invest you into the whole overall world of the of it just not the games itself even though if you only play the games though you're not like crazy missing out on like oh no if you didn't it's not like Nier or something where like if you didn't watch the stage play and you didn't watch like the ending of like Drakengard ending You'll be lost. E, you're 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 done. I'm sorry, but <laughs> no, it's not like that. So I, I think it's uh it's awesome. I, I really enjoyed my time at Soccer Wars. Like I said, I I'm it's not like all blind praise, you know. It's uh, even though I'm a big fan of the series, I, I recognize that there are big flaws with it and there there's a lot, but there's a lot of things they could improve upon and what they have right now is like a good foundation to move forward. And I hope it does well. You know, I really hope, really, really hope it grows the same way that the Yakuza fan base did over time. And doesn't go the same way the Force Awakens did. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope the follow-ups aren't like, you know, how the Star Wars uh... trilogy, right? Not to open that can of worms. Maybe it's too late. Uh, I do have one follow-up. Uh, yeah, sure. So something that we've seen a few times when a, a certain property is handled with multiple hands in the pie, we see that characters end up kind of being flanderized. Like uh, sometimes you think of how the Persona 4 characters were were represented in like the sequels, the, the dancing and the spinoffs. It ends up becoming kind of like a very thin representation of itself. 
Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm getting at? I was wondering if, like, yeah, if the yeah. Sakura Wars anime, if it feels like genuine, like do the characters feel like they're the same characters you played with in the game, or do they feel like they've been exaggerated or or shifted at all? Um, usually, they're really good at like keeping them at a consistent uh, pace and tone. Of, like they they have a very strong vision of what these characters are. I would say the only um, big inconsistency with that is, uh, as I was talking about earlier, the big uh, weird direction they uh, took with the original Sakura Wars TV anime, like the more darker version after, uh-huh. you know, post-Evangelion. Like, there, there are some characters that uh, come off different than their game ca- counterparts in it because of the way it was adapted and the direction it took. Uh, other than that, though, they're pretty good about, you know, staying true to what the characters are. Like, in the new anime for the this new uh, cast uh, for the new game, uh, you know, they're, they're more fleshed out, but it's not like a narrow point of view of like, oh, okay, they're... They're now like kind of diluting what this character is. Uh, not, not that they've like taken it like in a more um, directed, like you know, adapting what a game character is and their adaptation to on the screen for like a TV run uh, can be diff- very different at times. So no, they they've been doing a very good job um, keeping it consistent. Of, like hear. okay, I rem- I remember this character as this is is the way they definitely would respond. Like um. For for example, like like in the newest episode that just aired, you know, they're following up on uh like on this duo, like my my two favorite characters, uh, Clarice and Azami, uh, from the game. Like they started developing like you know a really cool like dynamic with each other, like a cool like buddy buddy dynamic that they that's like minorly acknowledged in the game, and then they follow up on it with like a a whole episode that like they go on their own adventures about this certain you know crisis that's uh facing and they have like this whole defunct goofy detective duo they're they're having it's very it stays very true to their characters you know yeah it's good to hear because you know sometimes you see like if this is gonna this is gonna reveal how basic i am but um like the dragon ball super has an anime and a manga but since they're Mm -hmm. like handled by uh two different groups of people like two different sets of writers you can tell that the characterization is like super different yeah, they all. Really and then obviously, I already brought up uh, Persona Four. Basically, the longer that the longer that those characters remained relevant in its different iterations, you could see how each person is like, "Oh, you got to remind people that Chie likes meat or whatever." And they yeah, just, like, I, I get on you that, on, on those yeah. basic ideas. Where it's like, all right, Especially I like it. like Persona Q and and whatnot. And I remember yeah, that's another one. A few weeks, a few weeks back, um, like I think Soejima, uh, the artist of that. Uh, they were discussing like the the box art or the main visual for one of the Persona 4 Arena games, and like saying, oh, maybe they we would they went too far on like how they characterize the main character Persona 4 in them because like in the in one of the box arts for Arena, he's like all shirtless and like all macho and whatnot, staring at the at the center. They kind of like canonized the fan interpretation. Yeah, whatever you want to call and, it. And, yeah, like it's it, it's it's all fun and goofs and like I, I think I. I like seeing different representations of like or ideas of like how characters can be, but it's just like how persona. How do I want to phrase this? I don't want it to go the way that Persona Q did, where it's like it's the whole basis of that character. I want them to have more different dimensions, unlike what Persona Q did, where everyone had a very one-track personality to just like capitalize on as goose. Protein. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Akihiko. Um, so yeah, I think it's kind of cool to see like a different writer's take on a character as long as it's faithful, but definitely we can see that it's possible to go too far. So to make this, the, basically I'm glad to hear that Soccer Wars isn't at that point. 
So yeah, Josh put up a the, the feature about two weeks ago about the series. Uh, we obviously have the review from last week where he goes in depth. It's a very uh, detailed review about the, the reboot. And then of course, we've got a bunch of uh, guides in terms of the dialogue options, the uh, the bromines, uh, bromides. Bromides. Well, I mean, basically, any, yeah, anything in the game that you're not sure on, we've got, uh, Josh has been a very detailed at documenting all of that. So that's all up on the website. Yeah, I mean, it, was, it just wasn't a, like a solo effort too. Like I, I definitely put that in text, you know, but shout outs to Alex, our boss, for helping me, you know, format everything. He, he was a big, big help, you know, and making sure everything was looked nice. You know, I'm not, I'm not perfect in like making things look nice for these things. So he's awesome at that. So I do know that you, well, I guess before I move on, is there anything else that you or anyone else want to contribute about uh, Sakura Wars? I just, I haven't played it and I don't have a lot of other thoughts on it other than what I've already put forward here. So I just, any other further thoughts on that? I, uh, uh, yeah, go for it, George. Are you sure? Yeah, go for it. Well, because I didn't want to interrupt because Josh is the expert, as we said, but I, I've been playing through it and as oh, yeah, i didn't know you had been playing through it yeah i, I, I didn't want to interrupt because I, I was so interested in what josh had to say um but i'm really really enjoying it and i'm a newcomer to most most of the things i'm looking at at the moment like uh with charles and manor uh, two weeks ago or maybe a week time time has no meaning anymore um and yeah i i just really enjoy it everything josh said is true um the combat is, and I know it's not the focus at all, but the combat's the only thing that makes me a little less positive on it because it's just quite generic. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I know going in, like I, I'm not, I'm not here to play the combat bits. Uh, but I haven't really been able to put it down. Like I am just really interested in seeing how it plays out. Yeah, and I think it really uh, nails, and maybe you've seen a little bit of this, George, it's like it really has a nice sense of like a relaxing, comfortable atmosphere. And that's a lot of things that a lot of games like don't really focus on because this this game is definitely takes place like in one singular location, mainly in this Grand Imperial Theater. And you really, when you come back to it, you feel like you've come, even though you're a newcomer, I'm interested, I'm interested, interested to hear if like if you think it's like a, a nice home, a sense of place and time and place. Yeah, like, no, I can really kind of feel it. that. Mm -hmm. Like, and the funny thing is, when you mentioned earlier about how they're they're very self-aware about the legacy and how how do we live up to the the people of old? When you said it, I was like, oh my god, yeah, they say that a lot. Like a, a lot of it is like, oh, this place sucks now. Why? Why does it suck so much now? And I was just like, oh, is that just like a, you know, this place seems pretty pretty nice to me. But I guess <laughs> now yeah. the context it makes sense. Um, I'm sure I'll, I'll have a lot more to talk about it next week because I, I want to give it a few run-throughs. Like that's it. If a game, if I'm playing a game and I know I'm gonna play it more than once, it's already pretty successful in my eyes. Now, how are you holding up on like the the time choices and whatnot being thrown your way? That's that's one of my favorite because I, I love that kind of gameplay. I love uh, picking out conversation choices. It's usually my favorite thing in an RPG, like in Fallout. Well, not Fallout Four. We don't talk about that. Um, <laughs> I find what's especially interesting is that all of the choices aren't obvious. So I remember early on in the game, uh, they're talking about. The, the, I think they're talking about how, oh, we're gonna have to shut down because we can't put on a, a good show. So this is this is early stuff. And then one of my options was to be all like confident because Claris was saying, oh, 
this this is a shame we we're not gonna we're not gonna save the theater and and my option was to be all confident like yeah we will and i chose that like oh this this will get me some good points for everyone she was like oh you're being unrealistic there i was like oh wow okay so i'm actually gonna have to sort of learn each character and that that's fantastic that's the sort of depth i want from the system it gets a bit and i knew this going in because it, it has got a bit of a reputation as a sort of like semi-dating sin well i say semi yeah i don't know i thought well, i leaned pretty heavily into that that was my interpret my impression not no well, not having played it it does but like to to boil down the conversation which i think is called lips uh correct me if i'm wrong there josh yeah it's uh the it's a live interactive picture system that's it so that to boil that down to it's a dating sim i don't think would be right because it's a lot of conversations with a lot of people and you're not trying to date them all obviously so but the the dating sim side of it is really really like sewn into it but there's sometimes when it gets a bit awkward like i know that's i think that's a cultural thing and it's part of the charm as well but i remember again this is really early into the game but Clarice is reading, and one of her character traits is that when she's reading, she's like, just does not notice anything else. And um, the options were like, oh, put my hands over her eyes. And then one of them said, oh, I can't control my hands. And I was like, oh, he's probably going to like, I don't know, poker or something. And then as, as I selected it, and as it started playing out, I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, I know what he's going to do. He's going to like, th the implication was that he was going to grope her. And then I, I lost, like, Sakura was really annoyed with me about it, and I, I sat there and I was like, I didn't even mean to do that, <laughs> but it was quite funny. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's one of the weird things about Sakura Wars, also because it's so versatile with how you want to be your uh, make your character. You can definitely make him creepy. The game will uh, has systems to disincentivize you to like go down that route, but you can because obviously, if you try to go down that route, you'll lose a lot of trust uh, levels with people, but. You know, it's. I don't want to like make an excuse for like you know when the series does go down that route, right? Because it's easy to say, oh, you you know, you you made him a creep because like you had the option to not to. You're like you're doing this to yourself. Yeah. And I don't know. If that's a really great like defense for like, be just because it was an option, does that make it excusable to to uh you know include elements like that? Like there are definitely elements like uh bath events in the game where you can you can certainly you know go with the option of like peeking in on the girls when they're taking a bath you don't have to but does that make it any less right of it being in the game and the the weird part is they toned this down from the earlier games right because in the earlier games you had this whole like mini game like this vertical mini game where like you're you're swimming up this like swimming pool dodging these obstacle obstacles to like sit it looked like if i remember correctly it looked like like the girl was like drowning in it or something it's like it's like it was like obscenely <laughs> large pool in it too it, it was meant for goofs and like whatnot so it was like it was funny but it, it's one of those things that like the the series doesn't really know yet at this point when it's like in the midst of like reviving itself what it wants to keep from the earlier games and what it doesn't because it definitely in the earlier games like it could get kind of creepy especially with this uh uh younger girl iris who's even uh younger than azami who's like 15 or 16 this game uh, iris was 13 i believe 
And there was definitely a point in, like, in the game where like, a, a whole character arc for her was she wanted to go on a date with like the main character. He's like the, the, the main dude's like in his upper teens, like maybe 18, 19, maybe, maybe in his 20s, early 20s. I don't even know at this point. But it's it, like that's that's kind of like the weird. Yeah, tr- like trying to like effectively, uh, yeah, trying to effectively uh, present that sort of like adolescent puppy love is always kind of a very thin line to uh, to walk. But I was just gonna yeah. think like generically, uh, having a game with a voice protagonist based through dialogue choices, like when George said Fallout Four, or I was actually thinking Alpha Protocol, which is a very yeah. different game but has that sort of time dialogue system. Obviously, the the fo- the focus is different, but it's always kind of weird where you have an option to like be assertive or aggressive, and then you're like, oh yeah, I want to do that, and you select it, and then you end up just being like an asshole, or like it's not quite what you thought it was gonna be. And you're like, oh no, that's not what I meant to do. So it's just like a different take on the same idea where the game presents something, and you have an image in your head of what that means, but the writers of the of the dialogue itself had a different impression. So you end up doing something or saying something that you didn't really intend. So when George's anecdote kind of reminded me of that. I'm interested, George, in um, have you come across any options that like when you chose it, it sounded right in your head. And then like what how they responded with that was totally different to how you read the option. Uh, Well, the, the example I gave earlier is definitely one of them where I was like, I didn't quite understand yeah, the context. Yeah, but, but that, that was that was more of like the um, the the reaction to it, right? Because like when you chose the option, you what they said was in line with the option that you said. You did, you weren't anticipating the reaction to it, but were there any dialogue options where you read it and you chose it, and then but what the actual connotation of what the uh, of what that option would mean and how the character would say it was like opposite to what like how you interpreted it when you chose it? Not yet, but I I have because that is that is a common problem with selecting dialogue choices i'm trying to think of a game there's one in the back of my head where and i think it might be fallout 4 where plenty of times you'll select an option and like expect it to come out one way like you'll think that a response is like really charming and then they'll come out with like a really violent version of it yeah yeah yeah, like i'm imagining like in alpha protocol there's a lot of ties are like yeah, when let's say like there's there's this option it's like oh no i disagree with like what you just said and then like when you when you set when you pick that in alpha protocol instead of like saying that you just slam their head on the table violently <laughs> like you know it's, it's alpha protocol is like kind of filled with that it's really hilarious but it's like one of those things like a lot but, of uh like dissonance of like <laughs> option selecting if that is actually like a strength of a game like outer worlds or new vegas where the character isn't voiced where when you have the dialogue options you could say it's, it takes you out of body to not actually hear the voice, but then you can just kind of assume that that whole line that was presented in the text is what you said. There is no dissonance between what you think you said and what the character chooses to say based on like a two word prompt. It's just the, the whole dialogue lines there. So yeah. I think there's space for both systems at play and they both have their strengths and weaknesses. I think I gravitate towards the I'm not I'm, I'm the sort of person that I am not pulled out of the moment when the, when the protagonist isn't voiced. But I, I think, but I guess also I think being in first person also like if it was a third person game I think I'd feel that more like Dragon Quest Eleven, mm. which doesn't really have dialogue options but it really just depends on the context of how the game is set up of whether or not it feels dissonant or not. I think I will say this now, um, and maybe next week I'll come back and be like, actually no, this was complete hyperbole. But so far I think this is the best example I've seen in a game of, or or at least the most interesting. I think. 
because I've played so many games like Fallout 4, Skyrim, where it's like the, the options are sometimes be sarcastic or agree or agree but question or be heroic. Whereas in this, like, I guess the context just makes it a lot more interesting. Like every time a dialogue option does pop up, I'm I'm actively like, okay, it's yeah, less. Sweet. Uh, the best option is at the top. The the evil options at the bottom. The oh, questioning yeah, options on the right, like Mass Effect, where it's just like, oh, just always pick the top or always pick the bottom. You know, there's really no decision making involved. Or it seems like in Soccer Wars, it's definitely not the case. You have to think about every single one. You you have to. You also have like obviously a small time limit on it, so you are always having to pay attention. So it feels important, and. I, the characters I'm, I'm loving at the moment as well, especially Kamiyama. Like, and I probably butchered the pronunciation, which is why I've avoided saying his name. Oh no, you're fine. But, yeah. Oh sweet, but yeah, he he is awesome, um, especially for a protagonist that is usually just reacting. That probably could just be reacting to stuff. Like he he feels like a character, and it's saying that this is open to a sequel is sort of disappointing that it doesn't feel like fully complete but i would actually so far definitely be up for seeing more of this world like and i think that's the hope for for someone who's a complete newcomer to sit here and be like yeah I, what have i been missing out on finding out that obviously there's only been the wii game uh it is only the wii game released here isn't it uh the the it, it was a, P, a wii, ps2 and wii release yeah it was it was a weird one i, I kind of detailed it in my review but it was a there's a there was a whole deal because th this time around this is the first officially localized one by Sega back in the day with Soccer Wars Five. This America actually did that. It that took five years to come. And it was overseas. like a four. Yeah, I was, gonna, I was just gonna say it was Jeez. like a four or five year delay. Yeah, I'm hoping they do more. I and and that's like not even completed impressions. So very positive. Yeah, and uh, really uh, like big shout outs to the localization team. They they knocked it out of the park with the uh, with this. Uh, the dialogue felt completely natural. I really like the localization of the game. And also, um, uh, Sega put out a survey, like, you know, uh, a Soccer Wars survey, for, to, like, try to get feedback of, like, what people thought they did well, what they could improve and whatnot. And also, uh, it, it's, like, it's one of those official avenues that you know Sega will look at because surveys like this are very important uh, to publishers like these, especially with, like, uh, let's say, untested, like, IPs like this in the West. Um, you know, to try to, like, encourage people to fill out the survey to, and you know let them know what you think and also if you if you're interested in like uh playing the older ones you know definitely let them know that you're interested in like a localization to older soccer wars games uh like either either a remaster or a port or anything just to play them in english because I, I think those would those would be awesome to see like just this series come overseas like whole hog like that'd be insane and it'll still have a faster turnaround time than falcon games <laughs> one would hope oh god all right so josh i know you've got a few uh other titles listed here that you've played over the last two weeks but uh i'm gonna just jump around a bit just to get some other voices yeah. in, uh more more sure. more even load it uh mm -hmm. i don't want to just pick out of a hat but i guess invariably that's what i'm gonna have to do um so james the last time that you were on the podcast which was two weeks ago you were talking mostly about final fantasy 14 heaven's ward uh and since then I know you've been putting a lot of time into, naturally, Stormblood. Go into like what you've been doing uh, on that front in the uh, in the MMO space. Yeah, sure, sure. So um, I was really interested to see what I felt about Stormblood for a couple of reasons. 
for one, um, Stormblood, for people that don't really follow Final Fantasy XIV, was interesting in the sense that it was the first expansion that completely dropped PlayStation 3 support. That's so I was point. curious to see if there would be a noticeable difference in maybe not necessarily fidelity, but the scope of some of the areas and whatnot. And uh, I was also curious to see, especially after how good Heavensward's story was and how inventive some of the areas were, how I'd feel about Stormblood's areas. Um, and I did know going in that uh, generally the community views Stormblood with uh, more of a trepidatious viewpoint. Like, pretty much everyone I've oh, read says that it's still, still good, but it's not as good as Heavensward. Um, and I kind of have to agree. I think that Stormblood's still very good. I still think it does a lot of things well. Like, specifically, I feel like the trial fights, which are based, which are essentially the eight-person boss fights and, and that you um, tackle instead of dungeons in some aspects of the story, are probably much better than Heaven's Words versions of boss fights. Um... Like, uh, Heaven's Word had some decent trial fights, but essentially that was limited to the final fights in the base expansion MSQ or main scenario quests. And then there were a few in the post-patch, um, well, post-expansion uh, patches that were pretty good. But um, the two main trials in Heaven's Word, in retrospect, felt too similar to ones that were in the Realm Reborn. Whereas the ones in the uh, base expansion Stormblood are very different and very unique in the sense that both of them have their own little mechanics that you don't really see anywhere else in the game. Like Suzano, uh has this really interesting uh, situation about halfway through it where the tank where where one of the tanks has to take up a role that's essentially completely unique to that fight and i don't want to say more than that but it's really inventive the it's very difficult but it's also just super super interesting and then the other one and i forget the name of the ever uh, uh primal but um throughout the encounter you have to pick up these charges and there's like a specific button that pops up on the screen that you need to click at specific times if you have the charge to prevent yourself from getting wiped and it's really entertaining um i think so they generally introduce these kind of like bespoke mechanics yeah specific to the individual encounters uh does stormblood have any or overarching features like a new let me just spit some things out like a crafting discipline or or something that is like unique to that expansion like something you couldn't do if you didn't buy into it i guess i asked a yeah there was a few classes there, there were two classes that um were introduced with uh, stormblood samurai and red mage and uh, i played a bit of samurai i haven't played any of red mage and honestly i do need to play more samurai to get a better idea for how I, how it feels i think i talked about it like a few like maybe over like a month ago or something, how I felt about uh, picking up the samurai job, trying it out. But um, haven't really touched it too much since. Uh, the biggest new feature that Stormblood has is the ability to swim underwater. But I definitely feel like 
that's kind of half baked because first off, most Gimmicky. of the zones, yeah, most of the zones that are in Stormblood don't even allow you to swim underwater, anyways. And whereas, obviously, every zone in Heavens where you could fly if you found all the ether currents, and every zone in Stormblood you could fly in if you found all the ether currents. Um, and really, there's only one zone that uses any like really makes any specific use out of the swimming mechanics and that's the ruby sea the problem is though is that it's essentially a replacement well not even a replacement but kind of a replacement for being able to fly because one thing i've noticed about stormblood that i actually do think is nice is that so much like in Heaven's War, in order to be able to fly in a zone, you need to find all the ether currents in the zone. And like a certain portion of them you can actually find in the overworld. And then another portion of them you get from either doing main scenario quests in the expansion or doing some side quests in um, the specific region. Heaven's Ward, for the ones that you got from side quests, it was basically just a throwaway. Here's a really quick side quest that will give you XP and the ether current doesn't really have any specific story to it. It's just like throwaway. One thing that I've noticed about how the ether currents have been handled in Stormblood that I think is really interesting is that instead of just having a throwaway quest that gives you the ether currents, instead, the quests that give you the ether currents are the first side quest in a side story chain. So... It feels almost like they noticed that maybe people weren't checking out these side quests because for a long time, and it definitely feels um, feels like even now in the community, people say, hey, don't do any of the side quests that don't have a blue plus next to them because those side quests give you stuff, whereas the others don't. And there's very little reason to do them because, well, if you're doing them for leveling, well, you can just do a dungeon and that'll give you more XP. So it feels like the developers notice that, well, we have these we have these people on our development team that are working on these side stories, this content that maybe people aren't really engaging with or maybe aren't even giving a chance. How can we fix that? And it's like, well, we already had it so that you would get some ether currents from doing side activities. Why not make it so that we kind of give players a reason to start these side stories in the first place and if they get connected if they um get interested in what these uh, little sides like side activities kind of pepper in they'll give players a reason to want to continue down these side storylines to see what happens and i They're think that's a really broaden the motivation yeah. beyond just a carrot on a stick yeah do this thing to get the and thing. i think that's yeah, I think that's a really interesting uh, game design uh, change that they've introduced in the Ether Current system in uh, Stormblood. It doesn't actually change the outcome because it's still essentially the same pacing for getting those uh, Ether Currents and being able to fly in Stormblood zones. But it does um, give players maybe, maybe not more of a reason to check out those side stories, but it introduces players to those side stories that wouldn't have even touched them and say heaven's word, which is really interesting. 
so I've only played a couple MMOs, but I do kind of get what you mean when you talk about the uh, leveling. Like, why don't you just do the dungeons? It's easier and faster. And I do think that it is a mindset that a lot of players default to, myself included, where we're predisposed to do something the most efficient way and almost to our detriment, where if you do it any other way, you're doing it wrong. If you're not playing the specific comp or the specific way that's less efficient, you're doing it wrong. Um, or, and sometimes I feel like, I feel for the developers where that's a very difficult thing to balance. <clears throat> if you give, if you give the player two avenues to the same finish line, but one avenue is one foot shorter, metaphorically, everyone's gonna go to that one. So how do you make it so that it's even loaded where you're like, well, we designed all this stuff on the other path too, whether it's a cool story or some cool theming or you know just an environment to be able to, to try to get players to be inclined to try out all of the different avenues, I think is a very tricky thing to do. At least it's, that's, what, that's my, you know, my, my impression from having played some other MMOs, not specifically Final Fantasy XIV. So when you talk about them really taking the care to try to bolster these other side stories, uh through both the reward that you get in terms of the ether currents as well as the, the narratives themselves that they're introducing i think that's admirable yeah that makes sense. although i definitely don't think that stormblood is as good of an expansion as heaven's word i think one thing and this is definitely weird to say even if i don't think it's as good of an expansion i feel like the care that was put into the various systems here is noteworthy. Like, Heaven's Word, in retrospect, feels like, okay, Realm Reborn was kind of, oh crap, we need to get something together. We need to remake this. We need to give a foundation. Heaven's Word was like, okay, we have the foundation. What can we do to expand upon this? Well, Stormblood definitely feels like, okay... We have a game, we've expanded upon it, we know what we're doing, now let's start focusing on the nitty-gritty. Let's start focusing on really, uh, where do we want to go from here? How can we start hashing out certain aspects of it? And I really, really uh, appreciate like clean it up, straighten it out, like really like make it good, like a clarity, yeah. a clarity of purpose. Yeah, and I definitely appreciate that, even if maybe, even if it's not as necessarily bombastic as uh, heaven's word was which is weird to say considering this the story of stormblood is literally liberating two countries so that's pretty bombastic to begin with um yeah i'm enjoying it uh one thing i've no uh, a few things i've noticed that are kind of just neither here nor there first off like i said when i started stormblood i was kind of expecting to see maybe a difference in the scope but as I was playing through it, and I, I should stress, I'm not quite done with it, but I'm on the final MSQ for the base expansion. So I'll probably be in Shadowbringers. Well, I'll definitely be in Shadowbringers this time next week. But um, while there are certain aspects of the presentation and the scope and whatnot that do feel expanded upon and do you can see where they've kind of freed themselves from the limitations of having to design it for the PS3, I look at some of the con like some of the areas just from like trailers and whatnot and Shadowbringers, and I can definitely tell 
or maybe it's just an assumption, but it feels like maybe the decision to make Stormblood only PS4 and PC came up midway through development of the expansion. Because there's aspects I of see the what expansion. You mean. There's aspects of the expansion that definitely you can notice that increased scope, but then there's other aspects where it's like, yeah, I'm not sure about that. And it's kind of a bit of a weird mishmash. Not all of the not all of the time, of course, but just frequently enough that maybe I'm reading too deeply into it, but it definitely feels like it. Um, well, maybe maybe by Stormblood they got their legs under them. They knew exactly what the capability of the consoles they were developing for had, so they were really able to execute on that. Where first for Stormblood they weren't quite there yet. It was more of a crossover period. I am interested, or I, I do think it's interesting to hear you say that the fan base painting with a very broad brush is a little bit they don't they do they see stormblood as like the weakest of the three expansions because from an outsider's perspective definitely i kind of i kind of saw this is my uneducated outsider's perspective like stormblood i feel like was kind of like the big final fantasy 14 is here to stay like the realm reborn is kind of like okay they've righted the ship and heaven's words like all right they they were around long enough to get an expansion i feel like stormblood's like go ahead I feel like I should stress, most people I've talked to, even if they don't necessarily enjoy Stormblood as much as the other expansions, and maybe they clown on it for certain things in the plot or whatnot, pretty much everyone I've talked to, even if they aren't a huge fan of the expansion, still admit that it's a good expansion. It's still good. It's still interesting. It still has some unique um, mechanics and takes that it brought to the formula. It's just... When you have Heaven's Word, which before Shadowbringers was heralded as one of the best MMO expansions of all time. Then you have Shadowbringers, where it seems like the consensus is even more deafening for that sort of thing. It's still a good expansion. It's just caught between literally two of the best MMO expansions of like all time. So it's It's a 7 or 8 out of 10 hanging around perfect scores well i'd say definitely an eight maybe an 8.5 but when like then you have heaven's word and shadowbringers are nine nine and a half that sort of thing um the other thing i wanted to touch on and i definitely and i feel like i've played enough ff14 now to kind of have an opinion on this especially since i've been leveling alt classes and i've been going back to older content because of some friends that are still stuck in the realm of war and heaven's word i think the one complaint I have about Final Fantasy XIV isn't necessarily the Aroma Reborn story pacing now, but rather the leveling pacing and the inconsistent skill um, um, skill ac- um, accumulation for classes and jobs. Um, like, some classes feel fine before level 50 but then there's other classes where they feel threadbare even once you are at level 50 which was the end game for a realm reborn and it's kind of clear that right now with Shadowbringers' um state of affairs that because of the shuffling around of skills the calling and the reintroduction and all that sort of stuff that's that certain classes are better suited for level 50 content than others Maybe not in sort, maybe not in terms of balance per se, but in their move sets. Like, and it's especially deafening for my main class, Dragoon, because I just hit level seventy, and it feels like, oh my gosh, I have this 
huge rotation. I have so many different options. And then I go back to like level 50 content, which is just 20 levels behind like this level 70 gear. And it's supposed to be like previous end game content. And it just feels so stifling. Like at level 50, I have a, okay, so I want to do one, two, one, one AB to get a buff going. And then I go one D, well, one CD, spam that maybe throwing in a few off global cooldowns or two, like during a burst period. But as long as that buff is going, I'm just doing one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, no variation whatsoever. And it's super boring. It's super dull. And it's like, not every class is like that, but enough of them are like that at the early levels that I was, what I wanted to do is I wanted to go back and maybe do some of the Bahamut raids and a realm reborns content but one of the big problems I ran into is that so many people don't want to do that content un well synced nowadays because it was already hard enough as it was back then. But I'm thinking now, like looking looking at the disparity in the skill set that I have at level 70 versus level 50, let alone level 80, that I'm not I wouldn't be shocked if a major reason why people don't want to do the older content now is because of the way that level syncing works is that let's say you're used to running level 80 content all the time with the full move set then you go to level 50 or even level 60 and it feels like oh my god i have like less than half my kit i feel super super limited and it feels stinted and one thing i do think for the next expansion that um square next should focus on is dealing with that maybe rebalancing when uh, certain classes get certain skills so the early game rotations aren't as rigid as they are now and that there's a bit more of a cadence to it instead of it feeling like, okay, I played a Dragoon, I basically had the same freaking rotation until level 60, and then it finally starts really opening up and I start to really understand and it starts to click what my final rotation is going to be at level 70. I think... Yeah. Like, you're going a bit more into the nuts and bolts than we did like two or three weeks ago. But we had talked about, I think, when you were just getting to Heaven Sword, how MMOs are in this really peculiar, precarious place where someone playing through it, obviously, they start with, they start with the content that is the longest in the tooth, where you're playing through stuff that is five years old, six years old, and the developers yeah. might not have had their whole, like, aspirations in line or they might have been thinking that they were going to go one direction or, or they might have just not have the yeah. talent or know-how where uh like for instance if i'm planning on picking up fantasy star online 2 in may when it launches on pc i kind of have to go in with the mindset knowing all right the very first stuff that i run into is six years old or more uh and like the newer stuff is probably going to be more well executed with more know-how behind it that is going to be more smartly designed or that's i'm going to have to anticipate that go ahead that's not even necessarily what i'm talking about because it isn't the same content because what i'm talking about isn't necessarily the content itself but rather the leveling experience and the state of affairs for classes at certain levels so what was an endgame dragoon at a realm reborn launch was going to have an entirely different rotation at level 50 than what a current Dragoon at level 50 will have now. Oh, okay. That, that's a nuance that I didn't quite grasp. Yeah, that yeah, that's what weird. I'm talking about. 
Yeah, because like, let me put it this way. When I go back to level 50 content as a Dragoon now, like I said, I have a 1-2-3 rotation for a buff, and then I spam a different 1-2-3 rotation pretty much endlessly until my buff goes um, uh, wears off. So it's pretty mindless. Whereas if I play level 70 Dragoon content, I have an entirely different rotation where it's like 1 2 3 4 5 then I switch to a different 1 2 3 4 5 with off global cooldowns in between there and then I have like two separate um class specific buffs I want to keep up blood of the dragon which lets me um stack eyes of the dragon if I use a specific cooldown skill while blood of the dragon is activated and if I get it to two stacks and I can activate a different skill which transforms blood of the dragon into life of the dragon which gives another one of my skills a specific buff, and eventually it's going to get um, give me access to even more skills once I get to, like, level 80. And that's, like, head and shoulders a difference, but, like, in ju with just a difference of 20 levels, the amount of systems at play and the amount of things I have to consider while I'm playing as a Dragoon is a night and day difference. Like, at level 50, I don't have to worry about Blood of the Dragon. I don't have to worry about more than half of my rotation. My off-global off cooldown stuff, yeah, it's still there because most of my off-global cooldown stuff is going to be relegated to my three jumps. But half of those still aren't there. And the reason for wanting to maybe stagger them, because, like, one of those off-global cooldowns, when I have Blood of the Dragon activated ties into another mechanic well i don't have that mechanic at level 50 i don't have blood of the dragon i don't have any of that it's mindless whereas there's a a very deep and a very specific sort of play style that i have to be cognizant of at level 70 that just doesn't exist at level 50 is what I'm talking so about. So now what I'm thinking of is, uh, does anyone here play WoW or has ever played WoW? No. Because didn't they do like a level squash? Because now that's what I'm thinking might be more relevant to think they... about. Where they had 110 levels and then they kind of tried to truncate that down to 70. Wasn't that on the table? Um, from what I understand, like the Final Fantasy fourteen devs are definitely considering that. And it seems like it might happen for the next expansion. And I hope they do, because right now it's, and it's not just even Dragoon, it's very specifically, like, for almost every class, before level 50, your class will feel nerfed. It won't feel complete. And then there's many classes that, even at level 50, they don't feel right, like Dragoon or Warrior, which is one of the four tank classes, it just doesn't feel right before level 54, once you get Felcleave. And... It's been interesting, like, kind of, as I've been playing through the game, like, realizing, okay, I'm, I'm really enjoying it, I'm loving it, and, like, the content's really engaging, the story's really engaging. But it's clear that there's some, from the standpoint of somebody that's getting started right now, there's some very, it's not just the story pacing that's a problem, but the leveling experience that really needs to be fine-tuned as well. Because the early game uh rotations for many of these classes just doesn't feel balanced <laughs> it's kind of weird to hear you go into the details about how it feels wrong or uneven because you you see something like me from an outsider where it's like oh wow, wow shadowlands will reduce the cap to 60 
And some people just think, oh, that just means the road's shorter. It'll take less time to get the cap. But it sounds like what that could do as a benefit is that it turns all this legacy content more even where if if playing a Dragoon in Final Fantasy XIV at level 50 now feels awful or, or just worse than it should, that's something that kind of capping your level gains at a lower level, at a lower bar, it could just make it feel more even killed where, especially exactly. if you're long, where obviously Final Fantasy XIV is only three expansions in compared to WoW, which is like nine. So I'm not saying that one has to absolutely be applied to the other, but I, I just see the, I see the motivation is what I'm getting at where they can say, all right, we've got this suite of expansions, but instead of one only feeling appropriate at level 50 and one at level 60 and one at level 70 and one at level 80, if they make it so that once, once Final Fantasy 14 is three years down the road and it's got another expansion or two, and they want to make, Heaven Sword and Shadowbringers and Stormblood all feel relevant in terms of how it plays. That's something that a level squish or a similar uh, applied, whatever correction they want to make, could end up being useful. But um, I do have more I want to talk about Final Fantasy, uh, but I feel like we've been going on long enough. Uh, well, maybe actually... uh, maybe next week if you get into the uh, the post. Stormblood? Like well, the, what do they call that? Like a 3.1, 3.2? Well, 4.1, 4.2. What I wanted to talk oh, about was I actually did get into gathering and crafting over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Which is interesting. Um, but uh, do you want me to talk about it? Because this could be a while. <laughs> uh, like just just for the sake of getting... Yeah, no, just for the sake of uh, getting uh, other other voices in, uh, let's let's leave it for next week. Just Let's just try to even load it. That way you'll, you'll talk about okay. your your final Stormblood thoughts along with cra- uh, cra- okay. uh, gathering and crafting next can week. I, uh, can I talk about uh, the other game I've been playing this week, though? <laughs> sure, shoot. Okay. So, whereas I've been playing Final Fantasy XIV from the standpoint of a newcomer... I kind of, I've been uh, replaying through Dragon Mark for Death on PC because that came out recently and we got review code for it. And that is that could not be any more different from the standpoint of like my experience with that game. And uh, Josh can chime in here where we've both had the unique experience where NT Creates for, I don't know how many years they've been doing it, but they generally go to Anime Expo and... Not only do they have like merch, not only do they sell copies of their game, but they have demos for games in development. And for, I think for both of us, we played Dragon Mark for Death at Anime Expo before it even came out on Switch back in, what was it, 28? Well, yeah, it was 2019. So like we'd seen the game as it had been developed. And when I reviewed Dragon Mark for Death on Switch, I enjoyed it, but it definitely had some issues. And it's been really fascinating coming back to the game on PC after it's had a year, over a year of balancing and content updates and seeing how the game has fundamentally changed with its gameplay loop. Well, maybe not fundamentally changed with its gameplay loop, but how it's been refined since I originally reviewed it on Switch I'm interested to hear a little bit about this because, yeah, we, we checked it out at Anime Expo and at, like kind of early versions of it. I had a really like very mixed, somewhat bad experience with the final uh, game on Switch. 
because I played a really hard class at first. I played the witch, and like I kept getting timed out of like one of the very early levels because it's hard to solo with her. So hmm. it was just a, it was kind of a miserable experience that like I I didn't uh, put in the time to like really learn it. After that, I was like, ah, this is this is a lot already. So I'm interested to see to hear like well, how has it changed over time. For better or worse, the biggest thing with Dragonmark for Definite Launch, I feel like, was contentious, was that the game had a leveling system, and you had, like, level, like, recommendations for specific missions. So, but... to, to, to initiate people on who don't know what kind of game this is, this is kind of like a, a 2D side-scroller uh, action game. Uh, I wouldn't, it's not really necessarily a Metroidvania, it's like a stage-based uh, game and you have a uh, customizable like classes, uh, class of characters. It's definitely an RPG. Them. It's definitely well, an RPG. Yeah, up my alley. Yeah, like, there, there is a leveling system and stats in it. In it. I was going to yeah. ask what sort of game it was, but now, now you said that, I'm ears perk up. Um, so what I'd say was the main. I wouldn't even necessarily call it a problem when it came out. Was that most of the progression, despite the fact that you leveled up, was locked behind equipment. And while there was a shop where you could buy improved equipment, the essentially a plus one base sword was stronger than anything that the blacksmith could sell. And the only way at launch to get um, plus one or plus two equipment was if it dropped from missions. So the most efficient way of increasing your power was to replay missions to get a chance for upgraded equipment to drop. And one of the issues I definitely saw people running into was that they were saying, oh, these enemies have so much HP. Why are they taking so long to die? Is it because it was designed around multiplayer? Well, yes, the game was designed around multiplayer, but HP scaled in multiplayer too. And the main problem people were running into was that the game was specifically designed around the idea of improving your gear but it was RNG-based. So you'd have to keep replaying levels for the chance to get better equipment so you could tackle these later levels. And if you had the equipment that was appropriate for the level, it didn't feel like enemies had bloated HP. But the problem was is that, especially at the start, if you didn't have a group to play with to kind of offset the, uh, the grinding experience, it got really old really quickly. And I saw a, a bunch of people kind of just drop off because the game just had that wall that once you got past, it was fine, but it was very unbalanced in how it got people into the gameplay loop, I felt like. Yeah, James, I remember in your review, you it seemed like if you play Dragon Mark for Death as sort of like a, a normal platformer, if you just play like each level once, like you just go from one level to the next, to the next, to the next, you actually end up underpowered because the game sort of expects you to redo levels for to gain EXP and loot and things like that. And it, it felt like from what I could read and see that people were just kind of playing the game wrong. Is that kind of how it was? Uh. To a certain aspect, I'd agree with that, but I also do think that the way that progression was handled was fundamentally flawed. Because it wasn't just, oh, replay the level, you will get loot that'll be stronger. It's like, replay the level, you have a chance of getting loot that's stronger. 
which means that even if you replay the level like 10 times, there's a chance you won't get anything stronger that will help you progress. And levels to a certain degree help you with your, um, with your strength, but the vast, vast majority of your progression does come from the stronger loot. This isn't quite the same sort of game, but it does remind me, uh, just as an aside here, of uh, Final Fantasy Type-0. A game which I kind of don't like at all, to be honest, but Final Fantasy Type-0 also has this sort of mission-based thing where it sort of expects you to play these missions over and over again to, to progress your characters, which might have made more sense as a PSP game. But as a console game, it's just kind of weird to get in that mindset, at least for me, just like, oh yeah, you, ha you play the level once, but you have to do it a few times over to really be at a balanced level. It's not really the same sort of game, but that's just what it reminded me of. It's funny, because uh, Dragon Mark for Death actually started life as a PSP game. Oh yeah, it did, huh? <laughs> that long. Yeah, and, it, and obviously it released on the Switch, though it was also most like a handheld focus game. But... Uh, so anyways, that's how Dragon Mark for Death was at launch. I feel like they've definitely improved the progression over time, and it was immediately noticeable just how much the game had actually changed within the first like proper level outside the tutorial on PC. For example, there was a few new drops that enemies were giving me throughout the level that were very plentiful. You had these like colored gems that were called enhancement gems. And I was like, what do these do? And like almost every enemy was dropping like a couple of those. And then you also had these specific coins that enemies were dropping. And so I'll just get it out of the way. Levels can still drop improved gear. And that's still obviously the ideal way of improving your character because it doesn't require you to specifically upgrade stuff but now the smithy where you would normally have bought items from previously also has the ability to well and shops in general have the ability to upgrade your gear to a plus version of that gear so let's say you have a short sword if you have enhancement gems and gold you can use those to actually upgrade them to the plus versions of them that normally you would have had to find in levels before and in addition to that, you also have the Black Market, which is uh, an area that was on the map previously, but wasn't open when I played the game on Switch. You go in there, you can exchange equipment and these coins of different types for other equipment. So, for example, if you upgrade a Hunter's Sword to level 3, or, well, plus 3, and then trade it in along with different coins, you can get another sword that's even stronger. And I feel like that alone really helps progression because it means that, okay, you're replaying levels. Even if you don't get plus gear, you'll be getting a ton of enhancement gems and you'll be getting a ton of coins. And by that virtue, you know that you're always making some sort of progress with your gear progression, whereas before it was kind of a roll of the dice. A lot of the time you get something that would help you, but it wasn't guaranteed. Do you so, still have to replay levels though? Or can you like or can you just go, hey, I want to complete this stage and then go to the next stage and then complete that and then go to the next stage? Are you still expected to replay I, levels though? I feel like for the end game content, 
you're definitely expected to, but I feel like um, feasibly you could just play each of the levels, like each of the missions on lots once, and you'd probably be fine with gear progression now. Okay. Because, yeah, it just sucks that, like, you're still, like, early in the game. It's like, why do I have to, like, grind, like, the first mission two or stage three, like, X amount of times to even progress? Because if they, if, they, if they still kept that, that would still be a bummer. But if it's just like, hey, I can get through these early stages, like, once and then continue on, then that sounds more manageable. And then there's other things they've also changed. Like, um, previously, in order to get, like, the true ending was a bit obtuse because there was like certain missions that had flag like requirements where if you did something specific in this mission you would get a flag on the mission screen and if you got all eight of the flags then you would unlock the true ending mission and now i'm not sure if they specifically had the hints to it in the quest descriptions before i don't remember but they definitely made an effort to make it clearer what you need to do in order to get that true ending i don't remember there being this like old hag in the plaza that would basically kind of hint you towards what missions would have that uh, i i don't remember that it could have been there but pretty sure they weren't also like in some of the loading screen tips they actually say hey in order to get uh, in order to get well there are certain missions that have flags one per in-game area and if you get all the all eight flags, which the mission specifically will ha will hint you towards like what you need to do, then something will happen. So there's more like there's like some there's more guiding you towards that than before. Um, there's some other changes like um, so the Steam version comes with all the DLC baked in. So. One of the weird things that the Switch version had was that it was split into two at first, and then there was a separate like DLC season pack or something. And from the get-go, I think everyone understood that the game itself was originally designed as like a $40 game, and they just split it in two with the two character packs because they probably thought, perhaps realistically, that it would be easier to get people into buying the game if it was a lower cost up front. And then if they got into it, they could buy the other characters later down the line. This time with the PC version, it's just all the content all at once, 40 bucks. I actually completely cool. forgot that's how it was sold. Like, completely forgot about that. Yeah, it was weird. It was very weird. Yeah. But um, then there's other, like, smaller changes that have happened. Like, uh, one of the things that's interesting is that you can now change the type of contract that each of the character classes has. Which, so in the base game, each of the different playable characters not only has different abilities, but their dragon's elemental attribute is different. Now, you can actually, if you get this certain material, you can trade it in and you can change the elemental attribute for each character, which actually has effects on what their dragon abilities do, which is interesting. Um, yeah, it's, it's still the same game, but it's been really fascinating going back and seeing how NT Creates over the last year has really kind of, um, ironed out those rough edges that maybe would have turned a few people, uh, away when it came out on Switch, 
it definitely feels like the game is an overall much more rounded experience and yeah i, I still enjoyed it when i played it on switch but i i feel much more comfortable recommending it now because it so, was yeah so so long story short like the, there's a lot of quality of life changes in the way it progresses there's also like two new classes they added with like the latest update i forgot what they are off the top of my head um oracle and uh not ninja i think ninja was in the base game but oracle and another one that's kind yeah. of like a ninja I, I'm, I'm curious curious because i know it launched on steam with this pc version um there i don't know if it's still wonky now with its multiplayer because i know when it first launched people had to be in the same steam region to like connect with each other were they able to push out a patch to like make it so they, people didn't have to do that i don't know anything about that but i will say and i'm basically saying all all i was going to say about the pc version in an article which i am going to put out like a a longer piece about like pc port impressions okay one thing i've noticed and this is definitely odd but um if colin was on the podcast he could attest to this because i we got two codes i gave the upper code to him we did some multiplayer with it both with randoms and when i played multiplayer with colin i noticed that the network infrastructure seems to be markedly less stable than it was when i rem what i remember playing on switch huh and okay. and the way that the multiplayer seems to degrade is really unfortunate in the sense that you don't get disconnects but you get like input latency and beyond that oh that feels horrible especially with you that kind get slowed down because ah. the frame rate slows is this, is this like um I, it's hard to test this obviously but i wonder if that's also a symptom of like maybe you're playing with uh maybe another player that has like a, a pc that can't really handle the game maybe or is it just like... it's it's a, it's a 2d game that plays on switch and i mean like colin just upgraded his computer like he has yeah. a he has a 2060 super a ryzen 7 3700x yeah. and he's playing well, on he ssd computer. yeah so that shouldn't be a problem. And I'm running it on a laptop. It's like a 9750H. It's a 1616Ti. I mean, shouldn't be the computer for either of us. So it's um, hopefully, like I haven't played, like they just released the patch like the other day. And I'm going to see like if that's improved things. But if I can get a multiplayer match, that's the other problem. Like it seems to be doing all right on PC, but I, it's uh, inconsistent if you can get just randoms hopping in the multiplayer. Because I think at max they've had like over like around a thousand people playing, which isn't bad for the type of game it is. But if it's a multiplayer game, it definitely feels like, assuming they get the uh, network issues ironed out, it's if you want to play it multiplayer. <laughs> make sure you have some friends that are going to be playing it with you because it there's no guarantee if you're going to be able to find randoms to play with in say a month's time right right which is always kind of the rub with games like that on pc speaking like, of uh multiplayer 2d games very good segue it's josh good, i was, I was actually segue. like do i do i chime in here and do it myself or do i just let josh do it <laughs> Uh, just the other day, uh, George and I uh, have been uh, been shopping at the bit at the newest Streets of Rage release, Streets of Rage Four. It's been a hot minute since the last Streets of Rage game. 
George, what do you think? What do you think about this new Streets of Rage? Uh, do you have any history with the series? Well, it's... I know Adam and Brian are just waiting to say, oh, he's too young, he doesn't know what Streets of Rage is. But... <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> were you born when the last one came out? Um, well, it, it, with Sega, they released like a console a collection every single time. Every, every like couple of years, they release oh, Mega Drive Classics or whatever it is. And it was it's always on those. So through playing them, I think first one might have been on ps2 or ps3 that i played i've played through the third one uh and the second and first i haven't touched too much but the third streets one streets actually... of rage 3 came out in 1994 i actually wasn't born then oh my god see see <laughs> okay you might have a point but i have still played them um but i wouldn't say i, I love them like it's difficult to go back. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, they're, they're definitely arcade games of the era, yeah. right? Yeah. But I did, I did, I still really enjoyed them. Um, I remember as a kid always being confused why one move you did would take away like a big chunk of your health, and then I'd end up just dying all the time because it was obviously the coolest looking move, and I was a, I was a stupid child to just hit a button and go, oh wow. So I just, I'd never get that far, but I did play it. Um, but Streets of Rage Four, man, is it good? I love it. I, I haven't. Like, I haven't played a 2D brawler besides Scott Pilgrim vs. the World that good. Oh, I was gonna ask like, what type of game yeah. this is. So I'm a I'm a neophyte. Uh, like, is this like yeah? When you say brawler, like am I thinking fight. like Turtles in Time or what am I thinking? Yes, you are. Yeah, you yeah. are thinking of that. You are thinking of like the right. 2D uh, arcade games that have that Z axis left to right move around. Yeah, left to right and a Z axis and whatnot. Remember when they tried to remake Turtles in Time? Oh, it was man, like, let's not talk about bad. it. <laughs> yeah uh this is uh this is a really cool like uh follow-up to streets of rage obviously it's not the same developers i forgetting it's not mu um who, who are behind this and it's a it's one hell of a game it's it's one of the most impressive uh modern brawlers that have come out recently uh, it, it feels really good, really, really responsive. I really like the new combo system they have because in older Streets of Rage games, you have like you know your standard attack button with your standard combo. I think by three they added like a like a like a blitz attack, which is like the forward forward attack uh, move in this game. So they added some complexity to it. But the big changes uh, in this one is they now have like a dedicated like special attack button that you uh, use, and there's different variants like a. Uh, neutral uh, special attack, uh, forward, forward uh, special attack, and then uh, a special attack in the air. And then at the cost of uh, using those moves, you use a little bit of your life to pull them off, but then you uh, recover it Bloodborne style where you uh, have to hit enemies continuously to refill back that health that you use for special moves. But if they hit you as you're trying to recover that, all that health plus more uh, will uh, deplete on that. So it's a, it's an e a really cool trade-off for um, trying to maximize, like you know, your combo and your damage at the cost of a little bit of your health that you can get get back and whatnot. But as all the classic things, um, you can toggle like uh, the the icon or the appearance of like your food. So like in the classic games, you had your apple and then the whole uh, chicken or the whole turkey and whatnot. But you can uh, customize the appearance of that. And the one of the cooler things about this uh, too is like it's a very kind of almost like almost everyone is here situation is that they added like the the retro characters from uh streets of rage one to two i th i don't know if they got added three as well i forgot i, th I think so what, what was well, with those 90s games roots. and their 
reliance on turkeys as healing items. Like <laughs> everyone knew, Pennsylvania right? had it. Uh huh. It's just one of those things that your 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 mind fires up. It's like ah, meat good for health. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, the, the one of the most interesting things about this is like you're you don't you're of course your characters themselves don't level up. But you have like an account level to this, and then like uh, as that uh, as your points um, fill up that bar, you can unlock new quote unquote new characters in this. Over the course of the game, you get one new character as like part of the base roster, but then after that, you start unlocking um, like retro characters. So like all the characters from like Streets of Rage one, two, I think three as well. Yeah. All with the... yeah. no, uh, no, I don't know because Rue is the most the kangaroo with boxing gloves is the most like important character from that one, yeah. and I don't think he's. I, in. Yeah, I don't think I don't think he's in. Yeah, I don't think he's in it either. Uh, yeah, so one to two at least. Uh, and they all have like their original sprites, so they're all super out of place with like compared to like all the other characters. But the the nice interesting touch they did with this, like they have the, they have lighting effects on them, so they're passing by like a night like window glowing yellow, and actually reflect on their sprite, and it looks yeah. really nice. And uh, they don't have updated move sets; they're not like the special attacks that all the new characters do for this game. So in exchange for that, they're just all super freaking buff and powerful with their like base attack moves. So they I like say say like Streets of Rage one Axel, he can like mash out jabs like super fast. And they do all a ton of damage, and uh, their "quote unquote" special move is like their the the star move that everyone has. Uh, so, like uh, the Streets of Rage one, Axel will have uh, the red callback for the first game, where um, the the police car will come out and shoot out a rocket uh, at the enemies. Um, it all flows really well, you know. But uh, at the same time, it's still a beat 'em up, so it's uh, it's designed around replayability. So, like a, a campaign run is just like barely two hours in this. So it's just keep expectations in check. Um, it's still a beat em up at the end of the day, but it's it's well well produced. It's well developed. I, I really enjoy. It. I think the one thing that I'm kind of still kind of mixed on is its uh, soundtrack because the Streets of Rage games have a legacy of having awesome awesome soundtracks that that are really really up in your face. Uh, they they really just they bop they bop really well, and a lot of them was uh, headed by Yuzo Koshiro, and you may know him from Etrian Odyssey and along with a whole slew of other games. Um, and uh, Kashiro is still involved with this project, but uh, he's not the only one. Uh, the, there are guest artists uh, that contribute to special tracks like the boss tracks. And um, the I, I'll, I'll butcher his name, so I won't even try. But the the main composer for this, like when you're roaming around the stages, uh, is the same one who did uh, Assassin's Creed Black Flag and um, A Plague Tale's Innocence. Uh, Oliver Oliver Derivere. I already butchered it, I imagine, but there you go. You you made yeah. you made the attempt. <laughs> yeah, um, an attempt was made. Yeah, an attempt was made. Um, uh, so it's it but sounds does it really sound nice like they're more emulating the style rather than like yeah, it, it, it feels more it feels more of a yes. Uh, but the, the, you know, I mean, it's still okay. There there are still some good there's still some good tracks in there, but it's still it's still kind of not as in your face as powerful as how the recent uh, or the old Kashiro ones were for the older Streets of Rages games, which is still okay. It's I still enjoy it. That I there are still some interesting artists like Yoko Shimomura, uh, who a lot of people may know from the Kingdom Hearts series. Name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, has some tracks in here. It's very distinct. You you know when the Yoko Shimomura track comes up, <laughs> you know it. Uh, it's it's for a really cool boss fight that I won't uh, spoil. It's a, it's a really if you're 
if you played previous Streets of Rage games, you'll you'll know it. Um, but it's it's fun. It's a, it, I really like the combo system changes. There's a lot of like wall bouncing, a lot of uh, juggling enemies, uh, OTG hits or on the ground hits. Uh, everything feels everything flows really well. And I would say my only complaint with it because mm-hmm. when you were talking about the roster, because besides that, like it's it, it's utterly fantastic. Besides this complaint, I think I would have rather had like one or one, two or three of more like of the characters modernized and given a new move set than have the retro characters at all. Like I know maybe that's because I'm not as nostalgic for it, but to see uh like i think it's eddie the the kid who skates like i would have loved to have seen what they did with him like as a new moveset and uh, i think mm-hmm. that speaks more to the fact that the characters that they have like are so well done like they all feel really unique and playing through the game each time with them like is something i want to do because they none of them play the same uh i so... have have you have you seen most of the bosses are, are beaten like uh one play through this yeah, I beat the game. I, uh, I went okay. through Adam. So I, I wonder if you're going to have uh, DLC characters for this, because there are definitely one to two characters that you face in the main campaign that would be natural fits Yeah, I was thinking for that. the game. So I, I do wonder if they do have DLC plans down the line. Nothing has been announced uh, at this point. I'm just kind of guessing. How many uh, are, are selectable right now? Uh, four, four from the get-go, and then you unlock a fifth character. And there's uh, quite a few, few ones, though. Yeah, yeah, and then like, and then for the retro ones, there's like, I don't know, maybe at 12? least if it's, if it's that much, it'd be crazy. I haven't unlocked I all of them. I think the trailer yet. said eleven or twelve. Yeah, that'd be that, that's crazy if there's uh, that that amount of retro characters. So yeah, the the roster is pretty filled out when you incorporate the retro characters. Uh, but besides them, it's like it's like a standard Streets of Rage roster size. Um, it's it's cool. I mean. No, nothing. It's it's hard to really and say saw, much more um, about it. It's 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 a brawler, you know. And I saw Alex, our boss, tweeting about how he played it on his like home built cabinet fight stick setup, yeah, and was really fancy, like gushing yeah. about it. He he has. The, I, I want to try it on my arcade stick. Yeah, oh, uh, cool. I only played it. I only played on my Dual Shock. Uh, I guess a minor shout out. I wish more games did this. Was uh, on the Steam release, they actually gave the option of either doing Xbox prompts or PlayStation prompts. Most of them just default to Xbox and just never turn back. Uh, I play on my DualShock 4 most of the time because I don't have a functioning Xbox controller uh, anymore. So yeah, I it's wish been more, really cool uh... to see more games uh, do that. Uh, like I think some games now, like Monster Hunter World, it's like, do you want PlayStation, Xbox 360, or Xbox One? Like they're even making that differentiation. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. There are a so few cool. games that even add Switch. Oh, that's cool. So that's cool, yeah, for Pro Controller. Rather rather than just assuming everyone has a 360 pad all the time for the last 10 years. You know you know what game doesn't have that? Tri- Trials of Mana's PC version. It doesn't have that toggle. It's just Xbox? Or wait, it's what does it Xbox. have? Because the game's... That, is that game out on Xbox? Yeah, it's kind of funny that's how on, it has Xbox prompts, but it doesn't even have an Xbox version. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of games do that, right? Like a lot of the uh, the PC version of games uh, just have Xbox. They support Xbox prompts even if they may not have an official an official release Wait, for that platform. And Charles of Mana isn't on Xbox. No, it is not. But Why? It, I I played the PC version with my Xbox controller, and it has Xbox prompts. So yeah, I, it's yeah. kind of weird. No, <laughs> well, sometimes. Go ahead, James. Sorry. 
you know, for all the issues I had of the Utabaru Mono uh, ports on PC, one thing that those ports did really well is that it had Xbox 360 prompts, Xbox One prompts, because they are different buttons, and I don't know why games treat them this the same, uh, PS3 prompts and PS4 prompts. Wow, even PS3 prompts, huh? that's awesome. Yeah, because they were smart and they're using a DualShock 3 on their PC. But they were smart because they were like, well, for porting it, and it already has prompts for PS3 because it was on PS3, we might as well include them. So you can actually see like this, like an icon that says start on it. Like a button that says options or whatever. (sighs) They will always be start and select to me. I'm not options and share or whatever they're called. (laughs) (laughs) Or the touchpad button. Yeah, no, it's, I don't know the case for Trials of Mana or other games, but I do know sometimes it's been found where like they have obviously the PlayStation prompts in their code, because obviously they were on the console, but they're just not implemented for the PC version. And usually someone can just, you know, make a quick little mod to get them to show up. That's just kind of an aside. Yeah, that's what I usually do. Like if if I'm getting fed up, like... I remember pre-Iceborne on uh, Monster Hunter, um, I had to go find the mod for PlayStation Pro because that's one of those games that I really, really need like the the in-game button prompts for, and it's hard. Re- and I I need them to like register immediately instead of like taking like the split second and figure out okay, uh, B is circle, A is cross. Uh, well, I was playing um, the PC port <laughs> of Final Fantasy VII about a month ago, and that's built on the old Eidos port from. 1999 or whatever oh wow uh and so like on by default that one says okay in brackets or cancel in brackets it doesn't actually tell you the button Uh. so there's like a there's like a very simple set of mods where it's just like all this does is adjust the text to say either abxy or triangle square x circle or whatever depending on what what version you're you're using hopefully everyone gets on board that 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 people do have some there are there are people who play a computer that actually do not play on an Xbox controller. I'm just letting you know all right now, developers who are listening <laughs> to this. <laughs> Swear to God. So uh, we have a few more games listed here, but just in the interest of uh, metering the time, I think we'll go into some of the big topics for the week because we have kind of yeah. two big realms of announcements from the last seven days. Uh, speaking of Yoko Shimomura, uh, one of those is Xenoblade Definitive Edition. Uh, lots of kind of details from various locations. And then the other is obviously all the new stuff about the next Assassin's Creed, which is very much an RPG, as we have learned. So we'll just tackle those two topics in that order. So for Xenoblade Definitive Edition, this is kind of like a hodgepodge of details from different sources. We had a long kind of overview trailer. So far, as far as I can tell, it's only on the Japanese Nintendo YouTube account. And then a lot of detail has also been provided through their Japanese Twitter uh, news posts and the Japanese game website. Though luckily, one of our site contributors, Kite Steinbuck, has done a lot of uh, work translating what those details are and getting them up on the site. And I don't I guess, where should we start on this? A lot of this is kind of detail we could have, we kind of knew ahead of time, like in terms of being able to select uh, which version of the soundtrack you want to hear. And then I think some of this was also stuff that was teased in the announcement Nintendo Direct, but was now more fully detailed here, such as being able to select 
what your appearance will look like regardless of what armor you have equipped yeah they have, they have fashion slots now so if you can yeah you, which you don't is by stats for you know looking nice right and like it's kind of interesting how in the last 10 years it was like how that's kind of come around on a, on a few different series like when the dark souls uh this is gonna sound like a weird tangent but i, I promise that there's a point to it like Dark Souls is more of a game about skill and execution and a little bit less about stats. So there was always the idea of fashion souls, where it's just mm -hmm. like, just wear what, you, what looks good and then you can still beat the game. Uh, and then Monster Hunter, when it, World, when it first uh, came out, had kind of this outfit system with terms of layered armor, but then with Iceborne and the post-Iceborne uh, updates have kind of basically made it. So it's like, if you want your gear to look like this, but have the stats of this set, those two things are now divorced from each other. You don't, you're not locked into one with the other. And anyone who's played the original Xenoblade knows that <laughs> as much as I hate to say it, some of that armor in that game is atrocious looking. It looks really I don't even, bad. Yeah, even I, I, yeah. I, I love Endgame Xenoblade 1 uh, armor sets because you you just, you, your characters just become tanks on feet, you know? <laughs> and not only that, you've got... but um, also like it, for certain builds, you didn't necessarily want your armor to be all from like the same set. Like sometimes you'd want certain different sets for your like your chest piece and your head piece and your pants. So like you'd not only just be like this in these big bulking bulky armor, but also just like totally mismatched. It, it looked interesting. And some of the least. armor was like cheeky, like it'd be like swimsuit. So you'd have like Shulk with actually no no uh, no shirt, but you'd have like this giant headpiece or something like that, and like wonky <laughs> yeah. boots. But, like okay, long story short, yeah. uh, basically now you can, to some extent, choose what your outfit looks like independent of what gear you actually have equipped, which is obviously, I think, a quality of life improvement that we can all appreciate. And it's, I think, something that will kind of be more, uh, just more prevalent across several genres going forward. As yeah, people like to share their characters, or go ahead. Yeah, perhaps it's worth mentioning that even Xenoblade Two didn't really get this quite right. That like there were some costumes in that game, but they were basically attached to one of your accessory slots. I don't remember exact like names here, but it was still tied to your stats. So it'd be like you can wear this costume, but it will affect this stat or affect. Yeah, so remove your remove your, your critical boost yeah. uh, accessory to change how your pyro looks. It's like, well, I don't know if I want to make that trade off. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of like interesting like tweaks just to the overall UI uh, as well in the Z definitive edition of Xenoblade uh, shown in the recent trailer, like uh, the way that uh, future vision works uh, when uh, the Monado activates and oncoming uh, an incoming enemy attack comes, like the the way it presents itself is much more intuitive and much more easily you know digestible at a glance when they do that. When it shows uh, your positions are lined are lined up, it actually indicates that. Uh, in the trailer, so like thing, uh, neat, like very minute things on the side that like kind of help just the overall flow of, uh, of combat really yeah, goes a like long for way. For example, me. there are some skills that like do more damage if you're at the when you're at an enemy's back. Mm -hmm. And in the first in the original game, you just had to sort of guess like, all right, I'm behind the enemy. Am I close enough for it to count? But in this game, there's actually a little indicator that tells you you are behind the enemy, basically. Mm -hmm. So. And then there's also be more effective here. Like the the Over it? the quest log has been updated so that you can set like an active quest, which will tell you where the destination is. And then like the character map system, I forget what it's called in game, 
there's new tools at play to tell you when that character is active and where they'll be because there is like a day night cycle which really affects who's available and you know yeah, when they're yeah so against, that becomes difficult and in the original game in the original game it was sort of a crapshoot like i need to talk to this this npc to do this quest i know i think he shows up here but I'm yeah not sure it was when. it was you, awful 100 the xenoblade through. game you you would actually have to like cycle through different time period like maybe he's here in the afternoon nope maybe he's here in the morning nope maybe he's here at midnight there he is and now there's at least somewhere you can check that yeah it's uh i'm very thankful for all the the help the, the little changes they're making to uh just helping out with that at least i really I, it, it like i still can i still cannot tell you like how how many hours it takes to like 100 the original game because of like trying to go through like that that little stuff adds up time and it's just, it's a nightmare to manage. It is. And the original game kind of went halfway. They made it so that you could change the time on the fly. But if you didn't know where you needed to go or what what, what when you needed to go, it, it only went so far. Like, okay, I'll, I'll change the clock to the afternoon. Is that person here? Oh, no, but I'll change it to noon. Nope. Uh, another th change that they made was the Colony 6, which is kind of like a, a game overarching side quest where you collect materials in order to rebuild a destroyed colony and get a whole bunch of like bonuses for it or whatever. They made it so that the progress of that can be checked in any time without having to revisit. So just another, again, just little tweaks, quality of life updates, you know, you know, things that they're able to take feedback from the original game and feel like, okay, we can make this, we can yeah. smooth this out. We can, I, I think we can streamline this a bit. One of my big remaining questions is how they're going to handle heart-to-heart -heart progression because uh, unfortunately it seems like they're still not going to be voiced the heart-to-hearts, but a lot of the heart-to-heart -heart events were backloaded, uh, like near the end of the game because you because they their bond thresholds were so high up that like it was hard to like get them organically as you're progressing the game. So by the end of the game, you have to like revisit a lot of areas to even see them because like oh I finally reached that bond threshold. Wow, heart-to-heart. They sound interesting, but heart to hearts are just are just like yeah, it's just one of those like um like mini events with the with the characters, like conversations with them, or like different events might like occur with that specific character, uh, with them. They're they're just like nice little things on the side, like just like little events with them. Basically, characters are paired off and they have an affinity for each other based on uh, based if you've used them in battle at the same time, etc. So like you might have a heart to heart between Ricky and Dunban. And then once they once they have a high enough rating with each other, you can see a little optional scene. But yeah, you you get those organically through gameplay, and then once you're near like the back half of the game, you're like, okay, I finally have everyone high enough to see these. Let me just retrek through and click them all off. And it sounds like that might still be a, a bit unchanged, but yeah, it is so, it who knows? They also showed a little bit of new footage of the the new epilogue uh, story, the futures connected one uh, that focuses on Shulk and uh, Melia. Uh, and then you kind of get a glimpse of like a little bit more of how battles work in it. That it seems to be like you get new party members that are no pawn in it. Um, and they didn't show off too much though. That really spoiled off anything what it could be. I, I'm very interested in it. Yeah, yeah. They they kind of gave a bit of a premise about it, uh, where Shulk and Fiora are uh, heading there to try to Melia. Sorry, Melia. Um, they end up there. They take the junks like airship, but I think they crash land. They they basically end up on this floating piece of debris that ends up being at the shoulder, which is kind of like this. It's kind of, it's almost meta in a way where it's like this was cut content originally, but now they've kind of refashioned it into this epilogue. So a lot of people have already been trying to like glean comparisons to Torna. 
and how it has uh i think i think people have i forget if this was published uh like actually officially or just data mined but like you can you can find what the battle theme is for the new area people have been making the comparisons there so uh we don't quite know if the scope is going to be the same of torna or not a lot of it's just kind of speculation at this point one one thing we uh, do know and it seems kind of awkward but it's there is that there seems to be some sequence or event in this in this uh epilogue where you like find these no pond rangers and the more you find, they're called like no pongers, at least in Japanese. And the more you find, like they can actually help you out in battle in kind of a comedic way where they kind of like gang up on enemies, like a bunch, like 12 different of these yellow no pond guys wearing like suits. It's they're adorable. It's, yeah. yeah it's, kind of, it's kind of amusing. That, that, that seems to be some sort of like collectible sort of thing that you'll do in this story. It's kind of silly. It's kind of interesting because like I, I went to double check right before this podcast and the, the English marketing really hasn't touched on this much at all. I think the NOA Twitter account did this very brief thing, just like, here's what Shulk is like, OK, thank you. But like all of this is from the Japanese website, Japanese official account and a Japanese trailer. So it's interesting that the, that the English side marketing really hasn't gone into it that much. I don't, I'm not reading into that too much, but because it's still going to be a, a worldwide release. So. It's just, just kind a of few more weeks, out. just at the end of this month. Ah, oh, the wait's going to be brutal. Yeah, we are in the month of Xenoblade DE. Believe it or not. Have a, I guess I guess I have a backlog to keep me company till then. Yeah, we have all the April releases to, to churn through. <laughs> yeah. And that to <laughs> look forward one. to. And then, like the like I said, the other major news from just a couple days ago was the reveal of Assassin's Creed Valhalla, not Ragnarok or whatever it had been like Ooh. rumored to be for like the last year. So it was originally leaked, quote unquote, based on like some merchandise. Was it? People have been kind of poking I, at the idea it that it was a Viking from... theme. Go ahead. I think back when Odyssey had just released, I, I think it might have been a month or two. It was pretty much leaked yeah, but rumors was it like, yeah, it was in for a while division two yeah there was some art in the division two i'm pretty sure that had a Viking well that was more of an official uh tease but anyways they they gave there was like a 24 hour lead-up stream which then they kind of ended that uh with basically saying well the trailer will be tomorrow and then everyone just waited another day for the trailer to actually hit up to uh to hit and then a bunch of uh, websites such as like Eurogamer had some like exclusive details for the game. And it basically seems to go the direction that Origin and Odyssey had been paving where it's it, where if anyone was wondering whether they'd pull back on kind of like the RPG systems, the answer seems to be kind of like a definitive no. They're doubling down on those systems. So uh, George himself actually kind of put up a nice little feature kind of linking back to the Eurogamer uh, exclusive uh, details about exactly how Valhalla builds from the foundation that Origin and Odyssey kind of put forth. So this is very much a Western open world RPG, kind of inheriting a pretty unique space where it still does have that stealth focus, which... Viking stealth. (laughs) Yeah, I was was actually going to say that. Like, I don't know if that's really congruent with the setting here, but... (laughs) I guess they'll make it work. They made it work in Greece, and they made it work. Well, uh, it's the stealth is not yeah. as prevalent as it used to be. <laughs> it's, it's... Like there, there are still there are stealth elements in the sense that like you can still hide, and then you can still like pop instant kills if you hide. But like the, the what they've improved upon in Origins and Odyssey is like 
the 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 battle system in which like if you get caught during stealth and just uh how do you react to that what systems can you play with uh in response to that so yes there is still quote-unquote stealth mechanics but you know it is remember remember in the like assassin's creed 2 era this was before it was a rpg where like if you're if you're encountering like six enemies at once they'd kind of just stand at you in a circle and attack at you yeah attack you one -on -one yeah that, 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 that was the, remember this the old assassin's creed system battle system was just basically you're waiting till someone swings at you to counter them and kill them and then that was uh repeat that ad infinitum uh so the, i think this is this is an interesting um you know setting for trying to adapt to this uh, the Assassin's Creed brand too which is uh, like cool very cool uh i'm most interested in how they're going to um let's say handle i forgot what it was called uh, but i think the Eurogamer article or some other site uh dubbed them as uh, viking rap battles oh yeah i heard about that yeah i i forgot um what they what this what they called it but i'm interested in how they're going to handle that the the thing is and th this is this isn't a hot take at all because yeah. Assassin's Creed has been going this way for a while, but I do have to wonder, like, with the focus on Vikings, like, basically completely, like, is there is it even Assassin's Creed at this point? And, and again, I mean, what is Assassin's Creed like... at this point, right? Like, when they went to yeah. Egypt, it's like, okay, sure, I guess. Um, it's a marketing label. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brand. It's, a, it's, it's like putting it's like putting Tom Clancy's name in like. Every like uh, yeah, that, that series, it's like it's like of, there's no Tom Clancy's like what, what was um, the most recent Tom Clancy uh, Siege. Siege. Yeah, there wasn't a novel on Siege, you know. <laughs> so they're not. It's just a brand at this point. Right? But it's like because I've I've been hearing about it for the past few days, and I'm I'm actually really excited for it. Like I'm I'm definitely going to be playing it, but I I'm not excited because it's an Assassin's Creed game. I'm excited because of all the Viking elements. Yeah, where it goes from Odyssey, which barely felt like an Assassin's Creed game. Yeah, I'm also interested because they they have this uh, system of, like a community building, right? And people uh, call yeah. it, like the the Norb like uh, Normandy Mass Effect. Like there's this whole like base that you can build in this game. I'm interested in how that shakes out because I'm, you know, like the the most recent like games that like briefly touched upon like somewhat Vikings and maybe Norse mythology is like the the recent God of War reboot, right? Like that, not not a lot of games yeah. really have uh, touched yeah. like this premise. Hellblade, like, uh, I guess. Yeah, Hellblade too. Yeah, uh, but not but not as in depth or like as widespread of a focus as an Assassin's Creed game does mm. these days, right? Like that, that was like the the very neat thing about uh, Origins is like the, this this whole uh, game is set in Egypt. Not a lot of games are set in that you know time period in that place. And then, like you know, uh, Ubisoft eventually like added like a museum mode to that, and like getting people like you know a better understanding of like okay, this like uh, how they uh, adapted like you know this uh, setting into this game. It is kind of interesting to see like they add like these semi-educational tour modes. Yeah. <laughs> in one on yeah. one arm, and then the other arm, you're like, here you fight Medusa. <laughs> it's just yeah. <laughs> having their cake and eating it too in terms of like it's a, it reminds me of like the, the it reminds me of like the the sony e3 right of uh introducing genji dawn of the blade on ps3 it's like giant enemy uh, crabs yeah it's like they're just saying it's like very true to like uh ja how historical japanese events and then they show the giant crab battle in it like, okay, yeah you're right you're right but i i do think i do think that ubisoft is uh, kind of coincidentally benefiting from the fact that 
this is kind of a space that's not really occupied right now because you have the witcher from like five years ago now as this big kind of sprawling western fantasy rpg but bioware is not really in that space bethesda i guess elder scrolls is on the docket you have larian kind of there but their scope is a bit smaller they've got like the isometric style kind of in their camp so there really isn't that big third person massive open world rpg like and That's even true. if this is really only sticking it's like one of its feet in and you might say it doesn't go all the way it's just, it's just kind of adapting just enough to court that player it's mm. still kind of like it's not a crowded space right now i don't feel so they're having success doing that whether that was the plan or the intention or there's just more circumstance it still is what it is if and you want to play like... a follow-up to the witcher 3 in terms of a similar style game what do you play you might get a few yeah. like glimpses from like the like the the, the studios kind of like spiders or whatever in terms of elex or gothic or whatever but in terms of like really high budget stuff there's really not a whole lot this is also uh this assassin's creed valhalla is also going to be one of the first like cross-generation games for the next gen this, yeah, so this coming point. out on yeah yeah this coming out on ps5 ps4 xbox series x xbox one pc and stadia you have six platforms stadia yeah stadia remember that jesus uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> by, by the way, this game will not be on Steam, which is not. Oh, oh right. Wow. This is this is on uh, UPlay and uh, Epic Game Store. That's a good good shout out to that as well. And but yeah, it's all, it was also more. announced to be the um, the smart delivery on Xbox, or if you buy the Xbox One version and then later get a Series X, it'll right. it'll upgrade into that version. And I think people are presuming that the same will be true for whatever sort of cross-play system Sony implements, but obviously nothing there has been detailed yet. So it's all kind of assumption at this point. I think it's a safe bet, but it's just not a sure bet, if that makes sense. This will also have uh, both... uh, Your character can also be a male or female in this one, but it's not like the uh, Odyssey situation where they're still both in the game as siblings. This seems to be uh, your character is either a male or female. There's not like oh, if you pick this option, the other uh, gender option is still going to be involved in the story. This seems to be separated from that as well. That should be yeah, a good bet. Whereas Captain. Odyssey, there's like you're picking between two characters. Here, it's you're choosing the gender of a singular character. Yeah, so. I think that I think that's a, a tighter focus. Yeah. I, I think Odyssey did it. That was an interesting way of handling it, but I feel like... <laughs> uh, Odyssey's th- way did it funny because like most people like... like the rather one of the siblings was always the female one. Like the yeah. the, the male variant was like he seems like a complete like meathead dork, which is really <laughs> funny in its own right too. Well, they also had to do this really silly stuff with Odyssey, where they're like, "Well, Cassandra is canon, and Alexios is not." Like, does that really matter? And then obviously, it didn't really seem to matter because all the marketing and everything was with Alexios. But people really care. As soon as you give them two characters, they're like, "Well, which one's legit?" Well, now but they, they got to say one but... of them is. Did they decide that Cassandra was canon? They uh, they stated that somewhere. I can't I can't I should, substantiate that I know right some now. Of the, some of the uh, DLC stuff for Odyssey uh, that Ubisoft put out did focus on Cassandra actually, like at that point. So, like, I, do but I think now, but but uh, go ahead, James. I do remember that with Odyssey there was that controversy that I do remember they eventually fixed, where like when the DLCs like. Regardless of the fact that in the base game you could choose to pursue a same-sex relationship, for a moment the DLC kind of forced you to go with a uh, heterosexual re- a relationship. It was it was weird. 
Yeah, there was a quest where I think even if you're playing as Cassandra and even if you made it, if, even if you were role-playing that she was not interested in men, there was like a side quest that kind of put you, you in that position, even if you didn't really want to be. Yeah. I, I believe they changed it, yeah. I think that was well, they, they basic, they, the DNA animus sort of situation, but it still wasn't like on. The, basically, they sidestep a lot of that by just saying it's the same character. You decide whether it's male or female. They don't have to, not all of it. They still have to, I guess you could say, well, is the male or female canon? And some people that'll be really important. But some of the some of the oddities of having this the pair of characters, I think they sidestep this way. It is kind of weird though that has any of the marketing really clearly stated that there's a female uh player option other than like the collector's edition statue or something well, really particular like the that? Annou- the announcement press release does state plainly, like actually pretty early on, you can play as male or female. Ivor or Ivor, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. A- Ivor. Ivor. I, I didn't even get it. Okay, His next but, uh, <laughs> they didn't show. Off. They didn't. They didn't show off the female version, like in the key art or trailer or anything. And then or Ubisoft the just had a yeah, and uh, they had like just like here's our collector's edition, and apparently the collector's edition it has a statue of the female version. Like oh, there, there she is. That's what she looks like. That's our only indication. It's kind of weird. If the character's customizable, As... then, like, yeah, when they always look really different. Like in this case, like with Odyssey, it wasn't really customizable besides gear. But from the details we've got so far, it seems like there's actually a lot more you can. I think you might be able to set like tattoos and maybe a few different, like slightly different hairstyles. Yeah, it's not, I mean, yeah. But I don't think it's like a character creator. No, if no, that's what you're you, getting you, at. you are right. I, I've uh, misinterpreted that, but it is just like. The weirdest example I can think of is GTA San Andreas, where you can't customize but hair, tattoos. That's... Wow, that's a really bad example. <laughs> yeah, you can customize quite a bit in San Andreas. You can go to the gym, uh, you know, slim up. I don't know if that's the best example, my dude. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> but I, as someone who's always kind of wanted to get into Odyssey, but has always heard like that the game is just absolutely massive, I've always just kind of... It's kind of the same... Excuse. I guess I have this uh, repeated thing where I kind of get uh, cold feet if the game is too big or if I'm worried that I'm just going to get sucked in. So I just have that same mindset going into Valhalla. Like, how big is this? Because Odyssey apparently is absolutely massive, especially if you're like a completionist. But like I said, there's really not a whole lot of games in that space right now. So maybe that's fine to have one game that has an absolutely giant footprint right there unashamedly. Do you think they're going to do the God of War thing where you can throw the axe and then have it come back to you? I don't think so. I think that would be... Well, Maybe the I first would, half. I would love to be proven <laughs> wrong, but like, I think that was a very much God of War lore. Well, I, I, I love God of War, and that was part of like... Well, actually, I don't know if that was ever really explained, thinking about it, so maybe... No, it's just... It, what it's, a, it's a video game at this at some point, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and I do wonder, like, one thing that the series has actually been pretty good at, it seems like, having only played about half the games, I've played, like, Brotherhood, Black Flag, the original, um, but, and people do really take to these characters. I hear generally, like, how well people took to Bayek in Origins or, or Cassandra in Odyssey. Uh, so you do wonder, like, this Eivor, as just a written character, how people will take to them, because that is something that people have really grown attached to uh 
maybe not Desmond, but all the rest, yes, people did. Or, or Connor Kenway, he was awful. Is Desmond still is in threes? the series? I haven't played in a while. He died in the like third game. Oh, yeah, like spoilers. I think I think you like plays like an archaeologist now or some some sort of yeah, like the, I think the, so. like it's like the the real life variants are very very rarely like or not rarely but very lightly touched upon. It's like the first like minutes of the game. It's like okay, there's this real life setup, and at the end of the game, it's like real life again. Yeah, setup. And it's like I guess it's, I feel obligated. I should also, I, should also <laughs> man, I rattled off all those characters, but I didn't mention Ezio. Of course, people really love him because he had his whole trilogy. So I just do wonder, uh, Eivor. Obviously, Achy. we barely know anything about him right now, but if any, if people really take him or her, uh, like I think that, I think I've been like the maybe the target market for this game right now because um, they they had an anime adaptation for this uh, series called Vinland Saga, and it's very 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 good. It's a, a long running manga in Japan, and I'm like, man, I really do want like a Viking-esque game, and hopefully this scratches that itch. Mm. What I was going to say is that I've only just remembered since it's been mentioned because it apparently doesn't mean much in the Assassin's Creed series anymore, but that you do actually continue playing as the the current timeline protagonist, the archaeologist, so I can't remember the name of. That I, I like how everyone like, like this. Yeah, yeah this, uh, this archaeologist person like is like, it's there, but like people can barely remember. It's like, yeah, yeah, I guess this person, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the only time they've made an impact was with Desmond Miles and they just killed him off. <laughs> I mean, I don't blame them for doing no, that. Me neither. <laughs> so, I guess that's Valhalla. We're all, like, I think yeah. we're all at different places in terms of the series about, like, how how into it we are, whether we were in, in at one point, but haven't played in a while, like Adam and I, or if George is still really Like Assassin's Creed is really... like, it's a complicated series. Like it's a long running one, all these different variations. Like, you know, of course, everyone's going to be at a different state than that. It's, it's, I, I'd be more surprised if like people, uh, I want to see the people like, or meet the people that like have stuck with every single entry of the series, like including yeah, the- Yeah, I was actually thinking awesome about that. Ones. Cause you have, you have some games that have like, a narrative through line where you're almost required to play through every game like the falcon series um and then you have some games like final fantasy where they're not connected but you almost feel like the same herd of people will go from game to game usually but then assassin's creed it feels like people just kind of skip off and re and remerge kind of based on their whim and their schedules so you might you might have like it, assassin's creed just to me it seems like the sort of game where you ask what people what games of the series people have played and everyone will have a different answer like oh i played black flag not origin i came back on odyssey or i haven't played since three but then odyssey i thought was really good so the percent of people that have played every game in the series as they've come out i, I feel like is really small but i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because they might find a setting that really appeals to them and then another setting that just doesn't I think the expectations for this one are gonna are, are heightened also because it's the same core dev team. I mean, there's still a lot of support studios, like a, a shitload of support studios, because that's the, how Ubisoft uh, makes their AAA games these days. But the main core dev team is the same one from Black Flag and Origins uh, for Valhalla, and Black Flag was I a cross-generational game. So fifteen studios are on this. So, yeah. Uh, pull up some popcorn and like watch another movie on your other screen while the credits are playing. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> But this this, uh, this is exciting because this because Assassin's Creed took a year off after Odyssey as well and yeah yeah new console generation all that yep is it really a new console generation launch about a new uh, Assassin's Creed that is true, true. nope 
at, the, like, at this point now, who knows? Fly. I mean, they're they're not making ridge racers anymore, so someone's got to take up the mantle. <laughs> so most of the other news bits for this week, there's quite a few of them, but they're all kind of just like little footnotes in terms compared to at least the Xenoblade and the Assassin's Creed dude news. So we'll just, uh, I guess we'll just kind of rattle through them and we'll we'll give our impressions or our immediate takeaways for each bit of news. Uh, Indivisible, which is a game that we've covered on the podcast in the past in terms of when it came out on uh, Steam and, and the other consoles, had a surprise launch on Switch. And we always knew it was coming to Switch. But the interesting detail here is that it was it seemed to have been pushed out on the system by the publisher of 505 Games without the developer's know-how. A very weird situation where one of the, uh, I forget what its position is, but one of the, one of the developer uh, figureheads behind the game was tweeting about how it came out on Switch and how he was excited about it, but it didn't have like the new update in terms of like, the co-op gameplay or the new game plus, and it kind of took him by surprise. So it had a long story short, it had like a messy launch coming to a system we knew it was coming to, but it kind of just kind of came out of the gate unexpectedly. Yeah, so yeah, I guess it's just a PSA that's like, hey, if you've been waiting for Indivisible on Switch, it's it's there now. <laughs> it's okay if you didn't know about it. We all didn't know about it. The developers didn't know about it. Yeah, Lab Zero even put out a little blog post saying like, hey, it's out. Is this before we uh, before our schedules? Yes, it is. <laughs> like, we did not know this was happening. Um, and they even basically they they acknowledged like, uh, we are going to update this as fast as we can for some like performance updates because it's not up to date right now. Um, they actually, I don't think, actually mentioned like the co-op specifically. Like they mentioned, they're going to try to improve the resolution or uh, some frame rate things and other issues. But yeah, it's it's not fully updated like the other versions yet. So it's kind of weird. What a bizarre situation. Yeah, I don't think I've seen anything like this. Like the the first thing that comes to mind at the moment is that Cooking Mama thing. <laughs> yeah. There's also some similar like... situations where you have like a porting house taking care of the uh, of this of a Switch version. Like the game that comes to my mind, just because I'm familiar with it, is like the Pillars of Eternity games. They're being handled by like a, a contractor house. So, uh, like the games are originally developed by Obsidian, but they don't really have any say in the Switch version, which is a different set of you know developers altogether. But obviously, the the the, the blame is effectively shared. Because your name's attached to it, even if it it's shouldn't be. So yeah, it's kinda, this might look Switch... badly on Lab Zero, whether it, whether yeah. they had a hand it in or not. Yeah, the Switch versions of Pillars of Eternity, I think both versions, especially the first one, first game, have had like tons of issues and bugs and things like that. And Obsidian is kind of like, hey, we have nothing to do with this. We made the game, but this is not our port or our work. <laughs> It's just kind of weird. Yeah, I don't want to get tossed on that tangent, but just kind of an aside where it's like their names on the game, but isn't on this version of the game. If that's what I guess that's just kind of comes with the territory of having three viable consoles on the market and soon more that we're going to be in this cross gen period uh, where every single every single version of the game will have a different set of hands on it. So indivisible on Switch, the game itself, independent of its Switch sloppy launch. We thought generally highly of. Obviously, we have a review from the original version uh, on the site, and we had the uh, previous podcast that talked about Adam and Josh's experience with the game. So another game that also is arriving on a new system soon is Yeast Memories of Celseta, which is launching for PlayStation 4 in June for North America and Europe. Um, 
it's basically like the same updates that the PC version got now on PS4. So, yeah, they they did add... The game doesn't have like that much voice acting. It's kind of like when you meet a character, they'll say a few lines voiced, and then most of the rest of the game is not voiced. Um, but uh, it does have Japanese voices now. It didn't originally. They just they they must have just updated you know whatever contracts were needed to basically just add that option in. So that's cool. But it's it's kind of just like the PC version upgrades. Obviously, not gonna have like the same max setting sort of things that you can do on PC. But like the 60 frames per second, higher resolution, better art. Um, like oh, I'm, cl- I'm, like my, I'm clearing the cobwebs out now. This was announced at the same time that they announced the updates to Othenthal Ghana, right? No. Um, Wait, yes, but didn't uh, they announce like English voice acting for that around yes, the same time? They, yeah, basically the PC version, they patched in the uh, PSP uh, exclusive like uh, editions like uh, voice acting. So yeah, I think they actually did tie those uh, announcements together. But yeah, so the, the key point about this specific announcement from this week is that the North American version of the PS4 version of Yes Memories and Salsetta now has a date. It's June 9th in North America. No, let me clear this up, even though it doesn't matter. They announced that the game was coming to the West on December 12th. At that point, they announced that they were going to add Japanese voices to the PS4 and PC versions. The PC version had already been out at that point. They're basically saying the PS4 version will get JP voices and the PC version will get them soon. And then on February 19th, so two months later, they, they said, we updated Telseda on PC with those JP voices we, we talked about. Also, Felgana is getting English voices, so we updated both games. And then they announced two months later on April 30th, the date of the PS4 version, which will have those JP voices that we talked about back in December. So yeah, there you go. Well, forgive me for not keeping that timeline straight because that's a lot of minutia. Sorry. From what I understand about um, the whole thing with JP voices for Xseeds Falcom games, it, the official line, or as close to the official line as it could be, is that they had issues with uh, Falcom. Like, well, well, they eventually had like Falcom like get involved with the licensing with the JP voices, and once they got involved as an intermediary, they were finally able to get access to the. Uh, licenses for the Japanese voices in the West. I, I don't know if they, like, asked them after, like, say, Axis Games and NIS America managed to get Japanese voices for their respe- uh, respective Falcom releases or what, but, like, ever since then, you've you've noticed that they've gone back and have started, like, patching Japanese voices into previous games that they released because they finally have had an avenue to get... um get those voices like licensed that's some cool insight but yeah i think after this we'll finally be like at a place where most of falcom's english catalog whether it's uh through xseed or news america will be playable on pc or ps4 and then we're just at the question of everything else that has yet to come over yeah we talk about this every week but I, like I, I just have to wonder like east nine I guess we just have to wait for next year for it. Is it is it any possible way that NIS America is doing both Cold Steel Four and that right now? Huh. Again, uh, I I really hope we're, we're 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 at no better place now than we have been any other time on this podcast. So just kind of wait and hope the situation changes for those that want to be more up to date on those series. I wonder if they might just like if it takes long enough that they might just only release the inevitable. PS5 version 
because Falcom's been kind of weird where they said that they're going to have like improvements for like East Nine on PlayStation Five, whether it's through like a patch or a specific like upgraded version. But if it isn't up like an upgraded version, I wonder if uh, well. And IS America did release the Vita version of East 8, so they'll probably release the PS4 version of East 9 regardless, but yeah. It, make, it makes sense not to. I mean, I, I mean, it wouldn't make sense to like not do the PS4 version because the install base of the PS4 version is still ridiculously high. Yeah. The next bit of news is about Digimon Survive, which we had two new characters introduced that are siblings, Kaito Shinonome and Miyu Shinonome. But the, the thing about this de, uh, detail, the, the little bit of a backstory behind it, is that a week before, uh, Famitsu Magazine, which is where a lot of these details originate from, had mistakenly put to be announced as the release date for Digimon Survive, which had originally been slated for 2020, which kind of ended up spiraling into rumors that the game had been pushed back or that it had been delayed, that people had kind of mistakenly corroborated by the fact that details had been like light over the last month or so, but they had kind of issued a correction and said, no, that was just a mistake. It's still slated for 2020. By the way, here's two new characters, uh, the the siblings that I just mentioned, which I think brings the total number to, is it six or is it eight? But as they've introduced the, um, the new party members, they've updated that key art, which seems like it's kind of in its final state now. So, I think this is kind of like the last bit, the last piece of bit news that we'll get for this game, unless they go more into detail about the gameplay systems and things like that. Are you gonna say something, Adam? Yeah, it's it's eight characters, and yeah, they updated the key art. They they kind of had the same key art since the beginning, where it originally just showed like two characters, and then they added some over time, and now it has all eight. Now it's just it busy like, and crowded, and now it's just not like yeah. Oh, and eight eight is also like the same number as like the original anime and things like that. Like this, um, well, eventually eight. I feel uh, for the main character. So it, he, he was like alone in that TR before. He's just like, ah, oh, who are these people? Oh. So yeah, it seems like this is the full cast. Um, it's a strategy game RPG. It was originally announced like around Anime Expo 2018. So it's almost up to two years since announcement. Um, I was actually looking back at some uh, older articles about it, and like this was this was this was a game that we had mentioned on the previous edition of the podcast before it took its hiatus for over a year. So that's kind of how long this one's been incubating. So yeah, uh, just obviously we have all of the character bios because obviously the magazine goes into detail about their motivations. Obviously these two are siblings and I believe the idea is that Kaito is overprotective of Miyu. And then obviously the previous bios that have been announced over the last 12 months, each, each character has a little bit of a snippet that explains who they are and why they're here. So all those details are on the website. But as of this point, it'll be interesting to see what they reveal next as they actually go into like the release marketing phase of this game, if it really is intended as a 2020 release, at least in Japan. So the final bits of news are a little bit less RPG focused and on just more general gaming stuff. And a lot of these, as expected, are related to uh, COVID-19 situation, as always. And then the, the others are related more into like uh, next generation details. So first of all, not an RPG related announcement at all, but something that obviously several people are uh, having awareness of is that EVO 2020, that domino has fallen. It has now been canceled and will be an online event, which obviously has implications when the game is a tournament yeah, so, fighting games. So yeah. what do you think uh, of this, Josh? 
Yeah. Evo is the biggest uh, fighting game in the world. Uh, I guess I'll just, I'll just read uh, verbatim what the Evo team uh, put out uh, in the cancellation of it. Uh, in a tweet, uh, they said, uh, due to COVID-19, we are sadly canceling Evo 2020 at Mandalay Bay and refunding all purchase tickets. But to keep the Evo spirit alive, we're bringing <laughs> the event online this summer. More information coming soon. The health and well-being of our community is our highest priority. We hope everyone stays safe during this time. So, I mean, obviously it makes sense. Uh, there's still, we still have lockdowns, stay at home orders in some parts of the country, especially at Las Vegas. Um, you know, well, well, you know, whether or whether or not we're moving too fast on that is a, another talk in itself. But for, you know, uh, right now they're scheduling it around, um, you know, uh, as an online event, there's a lot of complications with this, as you mentioned, because it's a fighting game. Uh, tournament obviously online is always going to be inferior to how it's going to be played offline with obviously with no lag situation especially since a lot of the main games uh surrounding evo don't have uh you know the rollback netcode uh like ggpo uh it's been like you know slowly starting to get integrated uh around the edges you know the power rangers off the grid uh the new guilty gear game guilty gear strive is going to have that uh and then they, they've been starting to implement rollback and netcode to old, even older fighting games like Ga, uh, Garo, Mark of the Wolves. Basically, each game is going to be affected by this decision to different degrees is what you're getting at based yeah. on their yes. current implementation uh, of their uh, netplay. Because I feel of, like it's worth stressing that the probably the game that was in the current, like the previous like Evo 2020 lineup with the best netcode is Street Fighter V and uh, Street Fighter V netcode being bad is already a meme. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, like uh, Street Fighter Five has like a, an implementation of rollback in it in its netcode, even though it's not perfect. Uh, there's still some flaws around the edges with it. It's still workable, but not ideal. But a lot of the other games, like Tekken Seven, Grand Blue Fantasy Versus, um, especially Sma Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, all have uh, delay-based netcode, and a lot of them don't have great netcode to support it. So it's going to be interesting to see how they overcome hurdles of challenges. Because let's say, for example, like uh, Grand Blue Fantasy versus, and like say, like the the grand finals of it somehow boil down to a European player and a Japanese player. You know, the the, the connection on that is going to be tough to Awful. overcome. Yeah, uh, to uh, say that you can say tough to overcome, but Europe versus Japan, like Grand Blue versus, like you just it's it's going to be it's uh, going to be bad. Uh, uh, yeah, like the one it. positive that people have been like speculating, I hope to God it's true, is that maybe this will be the straw that breaks the camel's back because people are like, oh God, what the hell's wrong with this netcode? Like on a large platform scene, like hopefully it shines the light on the severity of the issue, especially with Japanese fighting games. And we start to like art system works. Thank God. Like they already confirmed that GG Strive is going to have rollback netcode, which I guess is something good about the, that game for now. But uh, hopefully uh, it becomes an industry standard for fighting games. Yeah, ho hopefully hopefully it does like, you know, like wake them up to like these things can happen. Hopefully they start taking steps in their next games to maybe think about implementing that. Obviously, it's it's going to be it's going to be tough to convey that uh like you know on a completely unrelated note i saw a uh, tweet about somebody saying can't wait to see somebody lag switch goichi on uh evo grand finals yeah you know so i mean it, this this evo will be interesting uh to spectate you know it's a it's a lot of uh big changes 
and we'll see how it goes. Like, you know, a lot of people are very pessimistic about it and whatnot, and I get it. But to- hopefully but this is just a big learning lesson. Maybe it'll be an entertaining, beautiful mess. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, th- you know, there'll be a lot of lessons to take out of this uh, and whatnot. So, you know, hopefully it's the push that uh, a lot of developers need to uh, start moving forward in their ideas for implementing rollback in the future. Um, and also, you know, it, it's kind of a it's kind of a a big big stress on like that we need this to, uh, to you know continue to keep fighting games competitive even in an online <laughs> situation and whatnot. And I guess that's also what they what why people are hoping that Guilty Gear Strive is going to be successful because a lot of people a lot of developers eyes are on that to see how will our sales impacted by having uh, rollback netcode or not because. Obviously, you know, hopes and dreams and, you know, are one thing, but people will need hard data and the numbers to see if it's even worth it to implement. So cold medicine, in a way, for <laughs> the fighting game community. Yes. And then just as a very quick follow-up mention, I don't think a lot of discussion has to happen here, but one of the earliest events that was canceled because of COVID-19 was GDC back in March, I believe. And they originally had stated that they were going to push back to August and do a GDC summer event in San Francisco. Well, basically now they've stated, well, now GDC summer will also be a digital event. So I guess they kind of just admitted defeat, kind of has a negative connotation, but more just like realizing what the situation is and what they have to do. Like yeah. the delay to August was optimistic and to think that we could all meet again then. So now they're just saying, all right, we'll, we'll do a digital event for for GDC, which I think is more conducive to the format than a fighting game, but maybe that's an obvious statement. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, just, just another quick footnote. So GDC summer will also be a digital event. And then... This is a little bit more interesting than that specific footnote, but uh, we've had in the last month or so different outlets, different groups announcing their own plans for the absence of E3 or uh, Gamescom. We've seen IGN get on board. We've seen, I think, in the recent month, GameSpot and GamesRadar get on board. Well, now, uh, footed by Jeff Keighley and the Game Awards, we now have a new Summer Game Fest 2020 event that has been loosely detailed for a, another summer digital showcase of games. But this one's a bit interesting because it's not slated as like a weekend or a few days, but it's they, they have it marketed as four months of digital premieres, which I just yeah, think I, seems really weird. Like what's, what's the cadence there? What does that mean to have a start date and an end date four months apart for your summer game fest? It kind of feels like this would be, you know, a normal business as usual news drop or games only just exclusive to one outlet rather than like having a press release sent out every once in a while. It's kind of awkward. Yeah, just how do, how do you define it as four months worth of like that? Wouldn't that just be any website covering trailers over the summer months? The the, the, think, the marketing here is a bit foggy is what I'm getting I think at. the way to think of it is that all for those that might get involved, so in the trailer releases, uh, Fortnite was in it, so a good way to think of it would be maybe Fortnite has a Summer Game Fest day where they give out like exclusive stuff and then maybe tease something there. Like that that's sort of what pops up in my head. Like it's almost like a a blanket wrapped around the the months and things like, Oh, in June with Summer Game Fest, this is what we're announcing. 
And they've also announced the uh, some of the publishers that are on board, and obviously some of the big names are here, like Bethesda, Blizzard, Bandai Namco, CD Projekt, etc., Square Enix. Um, but that's the same sort of list that we saw on the IGN as well. So I think all the publishers are kind of on board to have these avenues to have their games marketed. Like, who wouldn't be? Uh, one detail that is interesting is that this Summer Game Fest 2020 will conclude on the same day that Gamescom 2020's opening thing so it was kind of like daisy chain right into that thing which i don't know if that makes the purpose of this clearer or or, or more muddy because is that just is that like a crossover point where we're still just going to get trailers packaged through a different outlet Only you know now it'll be gamescom once that once that sorry i don't mean to keep talking over you it's just that no, no, oh, this whole I, this, I this whole summer is just you know, this whole summer is just going to be really weird to see how it plays out and who's successful in terms of adapting what we would normally have as these in-person press events to this new format by necessity. More importantly, though, Warner Brothers are part of that Summer Games Fest, and that means that oh. Harry, <laughs> that means Potter Harry Potter RPG <laughs> it, it is one step closer to maybe being real. Do we know like which one of these will land first? I guess it's got to be the Summer Game Fest if it's going to start out on June ninth i believe the summer games fest starts in may it says oh the steam summer festival starts on june 9th so you have all these kind of like overlapping focus points depending uh, on your platform the, or, your, or your publisher the, 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 our 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 first event uh is 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 that inside xbox next next week um oh, good segue X, yeah yeah xbox will have a a, a new uh, episode of inside xbox to kind of show uh you know, showing uh, off what's upcoming for Xbox. Uh, I forgot the the exact date uh, for this one. You, May seventh, so next Thursday. Or yeah. Yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. As as of the time of this podcast, uh, they're gonna start showing off uh, third party uh, games coming to the next generation of consoles uh, with their Xbox Series X, which uh, since these are third party, uh, there's a good chance that they're also gonna show up in on the PS5 as well. So yeah, that's exciting. We're finally going to see like you know Which, eyes on the what, first, what uh, games are going to look like. Well, well, the first confirmation is uh, Valhalla is... be there. Yeah, we can hope for that. Right. Cyberpunk has to be there. Like Xbox. Give me Elden Ring. Cyberpunk. Give yeah, me Elden Ring. Crossing fingers for Elden Ring as well. So it's exciting. Hopefully they have a lot. Uh, they're going to be showcasing a lot there. Any reveals uh, you think? Or... Probably. I mean, I like know. Harry Potter RPG, maybe. Yeah, I don't know about that. Hopefully. There's been lots of games, not Xbox exclusive, that have been like revealed at like the Xbox event at E3. So it's possible. Ooh. It's just that it's hard That's to be cynical because in, inside Xbox has generally not been a platform for reveals. It's been more like deep dives of existing properties. Which some people might say is less exciting, but it just depends on what, like if you're really into Sea of Thieves or, or another property of theirs, to have an inside Xbox that goes deep into one of those is usually interesting. But now they're trying to market this May 7th edition of the show to be like this big next-gen showcase. But how big is big? I guess my expectations are tempered is what I'm getting at. Like it's still inside Xbox. I do anticipate we'll see a few cool things with like, they've already said that Valhalla will be there. Uh, if they can have one really neat reveal or revival of something like Elden Ring, I'll, I'll be happy. That's where I'm at. You know, I mean, pie in the sky here, but uh, remember when they revealed the uh, Tales of Asperia on the Xbox stage? Oh. Yeah, the Definitive Tales Edition. 
Tales of Arise, waiting any day now. That was originally revealed on their E3 stage, so we'll see. Waiting any day so now. So crazy that we got the, uh, a finally, finally, like, PSO2 Western, like, re-reveal on Microsoft's E3. So on stage. Xbox Series X, Fantasy Star Online 2. Hell yeah. Or or according to Major Nelson, Xbox One Series X. He had a little goof on Twitter. Oh, he, couldn't oh, keep no. the name, he couldn't keep the name straight. I, I don't really, I'm not, I'm not really trying to dig into that. It's just amusing. And, that, and you do wonder if they'll finally show what they're like, uh, they're rumored slash confirmed. I don't know about their, their, the Lockhart or the S or whatever that other version of their next-gen console is going to be uh, called. Yeah. See the fact that we're able to discuss so many possibilities, like it shows to me that this could be more. I think this can be quite exciting. Uh, it's all on Xbox though to sort of because this is going to be the first next gen like gameplay we see. So uh, cards in their hand, I guess. Well, there's also been rumors about Sony following up. Just rumors at this point, but people are expecting that to whatever their showcase is going to be to follow up not soon after, whether that's late May or early June. But I think we all Wait, kind of anticipated Sony are that. Sony doing with a all next this... gen console. No, I mean they're, they're, there's rumors floating around of oh, no. when he, they're he planning was on that. He didn't know that Sony was making oh, a next gen console. So so you, you said it. You, you stated you stated so matter of factly that it just went over my head. But yes, I think we will see <laughs> it soon. sarcasm. There you go. All that dark, dry humor. <laughs> the last two little story beats here are RPG or RPG related. Uh, little just footnotes. One of them is that Story of Seasons, the modern-day incarnation of Harvest Moon, Trend of Mineral Town. The uh, North American version of it will kind of shift some of the presentation of... Let me rephrase. In the Japanese version of the game, uh, there is like a best friend, lifelong partner system for same-sex relationships. But in the uh, North American version, they, they've kind of stated in a blog post that they will just call it marriage. So basically, it'll whether whether you go for uh, heterosexual or same-sex relationships there, it'll be presented in the same way, which I think is admirable just to put them on like the same yeah, standing. Yeah, that's, that's a good change. Yeah. So that's it for Story of Seasons. And then the other note uh, is, actually, I don't really know the context of this one. I'll just be blunt. So I'll, okay. I'll leave it to um, yeah. to Josh. This is this uh, relates to the. Uh, worldwide launch of Sinnoh Alice, Yoko Taro's uh, project. Yeah, so um, I guess to give some backstory to this, um, just a, a few days ago, they they announced the end of service announcement for the uh, the Simple Gear XD Unlimited uh, English release, uh, which came out of nowhere. This is very very fast and uh, relative for a mobile game because it barely launched on February fourteenth, um, in uh, in worldwide. Uh, so uh, compared to that, so from February 14th to May 1st, that's barely two months, uh, give or take, uh, till an end, end of service announcement on July 31st. So it'll be shutting down on July 31st. So, okay, but that that's still very fast for a for a mobile game. So this uh, gave, I guess, a word of caution because the uh, the folks running this is the parent company Pokalabo Inc., and to, uh, they're also the same ones who took over. The Sinnoh Alice uh, worldwide release uh, uh, from Nexon, and uh, the, that was supposed to come out um, about June of last year, and that got uh, indefinitely delayed uh, three days before its release. So, and then now it's coming out in July, I believe. So, just to you know, get, 
the actions speak louder than words. So the, I'm interested to see how long the, the English release of Sinnoh Alice will last now because of this move of uh, Poke Labo uh, shutting down Sinful Gear um, so early in its life uh, for whatever reason and whatnot. So I, uh, th that'll be interesting to, to uh, follow. And I guess this also leads into uh, uh, new near stuff because Sinnoh Alice uh, is headed by, well, the scenario, uh, original scenario was done by Taro. Uh, uh, the near reincarnation is a new mobile game coming out, uh, only announced for Japan right now, and they shared some new details on that. Just a very, very small, minute details. They we know the ghost name now. Exactly. In a Famitsu interview with uh, Yoko Taro and Yosuke Saito, uh, they did confirm that the young girl in the visuals for near reincarnation is not young Kaine. So who knows who it is now? Uh, they did confirm that the spooky ghost thing following her around uh her name uh the name is mama uh like a mother walk, 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 like you know caring for a child so who knows what that means and they Getting also can their m uh flashbacks yeah and I'm they getting... also go for it george i'm getting hideo kojima vibes from that with uh, <laughs> oh yeah that's yeah. another one <laughs> and they also confirmed that your reincarnation will have multiple protagonists in it and that's uh, that, that's all they've uh, shared so far well on that it's a oh, good time to be to a fan of that universe with the remaster slash remake, the Final Fantasy XIV implementation, uh, a new mobile project, Sinnoh Alice, which will tether in in loose ways. Yeah, that's a lot going on in the in Yokotaro verse land. And then one final note before we wrap up. This is important and critical, and I'm sure you're all itching to know this, but Octopath Traveler is now available on Stadia. That's right. Finally. Long so last. now you can play it on Switch, on Steam, or on your Chromebook in Stadia. Hey, at least at least finally you can actually like you know if it's at least it's not a game that's not uh, input latency focused like heavily into that, unlike Thumper, you know. So at least it's right. It's, it's a sort, it's a sort of game that might be conducive to that sort of uh, distribution yes. system being turn-based at oh. all. I'm Congratulations. Laughing at, I'm laughing at Stadia, but I think I'm the only person here who has a Chromebook, so maybe the joke's on me. <laughs> I mean, I, I tried out Stadia with a buddy pass, so, so someone gave it to me, and then that, that ran its course, and I barely yeah. touched it. And yeah. yeah. I I feel like it's gotten to the point, especially after that latest, like, it's called Stadia Connect, I think. Yes, they're direct. After that testing. latest Stadia Connect was a wet fart. Like literally, the biggest announcement was that Octopath announcement. As far as and, like, and PUBG, PUBG, I guess yeah. Though apparently PUBG's having issues right now with uh, the way they've introduced bots into the matchmaking. Oh yeah, because because like okay, so this is really funny about PUBG on Stadia. They have crossplay with it if you're using a controller. If you're not, if it's if, if you're using massive uh, keyboard, it has a separate Stadia only, like, why? server. I don't know why, but and so and they, I've they heard, had to I've heard up... horror stories about how it is to find player, other players. Yeah, they have to fill it up with spots. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, really especially when like, I guess PUBG is a legitimate and like large announcement but when that and the octopath traveler are your two biggest announcements for like your first stadia connect in months months hell yeah i, I honestly 
don't buy Octopath on Stadia. I, I honestly think at this point it's fair to say that we don't know if Stadia is still going to be around in six months or a year. Agree. So. Also, both they of do those have announcements were leaked by the ESRB ahead of time. So yeah, <laughs> oh. and they do have. Uh, I think the biggest game that has announced its Stadia support is Baldur's Gate Three. Will be on Stadia whenever that ends up being a thing. I guess Assassin's Creed now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. There you go. Also Assassin's Creed. There you go. So look forward. I think, to I think it'll out. limp along, but we'll see if it really actually swings up into something more than it is right now. And with that, I think that covers all of the uh, topics for the cast. So it was really cool to get all five of us in here to talk about what we had been doing and everything that's coming up as we go into the exciting slash scary digital summer months with everyone having their own method and plans for how to make do with everything that's different nowadays. And we'll see we all exist successful. Digitally now. Yes. We're all we're all actually just AIs. We don't actually. Yes. There's no presence to put us together. Imagine the nightmare scenario where we have two months where every week there's like a bunch of different announcements because it's not centralized, and we have to. <laughs> all all of our podcasts from May through September will be three hour slugfests of new trailers. We're proud to announce that we are officially part of Summer Games Fest 2020. <laughs> Yeah, RPG site is not going to do. We'll, we'll be we'll be on our heels just covering everyone else's <laughs> new projects in terms of IGN, Gamespot, uh, Game Awards, whoever else is going to be doing different things. But we will be here. We will be here seemingly weekly, probably every week anyway. So seemingly you can always weekly. find us. I yes, know. I don't want to commit. So you can always find us uh, at rpgsite.net at our website. You can see the Sakura Wars uh, feature and then review and then guides. You can see our coverage on the Assassin's Creed announcement, as well as all the details about how it's double dipping into its RPG. Uh, I, I don't want to call it roots, but it's new, it's new home in the RPG space. Uh, we've got all the details about those confusing to me release dates for the Falcom uh, East games on PS4, uh, about the Indivisible launch on Switch, and all the other little details about games that have been announced or detailed in the last week. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at RPG Site Net. You can find us on uh, YouTube at RPG Site Net. You can find our pages Discord channel from the homepage on our website. If you want, you can follow me on Twitter at Zeomasticot, Z-E-O-M-A-S-S-I-C-O-T. I've been spending the last week mostly just tweeting out Final Fantasy X playthrough, which maybe I'll talk about on the podcast next week. Uh, George, where can I find you? Uh, so as always, you can find me at G-E-P-U-G-G on Instagram and Twitter. Please follow me. Follow him on Instagram. Uh, Josh, where, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter at HDKirin, H-D-K-I-R-I-N. And Josh has been doing some streams for some closed beta uh, Gundam stuff. So yeah, I, I, I messed around with that last weekend, So, but it's all it, it's closed now till the end of July. But I might do some more live streaming stuff here and there. I do have voice meter and uh, Discord and uh, XSplit all working together somehow, so I'll be messing around with that somewhat soon. It is more tricky than it looks. Uh, Adam, where <laughs> can I find you? K-I-N-G underscore S-E-D-A and James. You can find me at T-H-E-S-W-W-E-E-T And as always, we will likely see you next week. Take care. Bye! Bye.